As the dust continues to settle after the midterms, what do the results mean for President Biden's policies, the way his White House runs, and his decision about whether to run again in 2024? Today is Thursday, November 10th, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Florida used to be a big swing state. These days, not so much. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis was just elected to a second term by a decisive margin. Freedom is here to stay. Also ahead, the graying of Congress, why Capitol Hill lawmakers are skewing older than they have before. And then the exception, a conversation with Maxwell Frost, the first member of Generation Z to be elected to Congress. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Dow has surged nearly 1,200 points in the final hour of trading in the wake of a new government report that reveals easing inflation. October's Consumer Price Index rose 7.7 percent from a year earlier. It's a better showing than expected, still high. NPR's Scott Horsley looks at what that means for the average consumer. Some people are digging into their savings to cover expenses. Others are relying on credit cards. Uh, Credit card balances jumped about 13% in July, August, and September. And keep in mind, interest rates on those credit cards have been climbing in lockstep with the Federal Reserve's rate hikes as the central bank tries to tamp down demand and bring inflation under control. NPR's Scott Horsley. Victories in ballot measure campaigns across the U.S. have abortion rights advocates looking at where they can next take the fight directly to voters. NPR's Sarah McCammon reports abortion rights groups see the results from midterm elections as a promising sign for similar campaigns in the future. Abortion rights groups note that polling suggests most Americans are generally supportive of abortion rights, even as near-total bans have taken effect in about a dozen states. Kelly Hall of the Fairness Project, which advocates for progressive-leaning ballot measures, says her group is eyeing states such as Missouri and Ohio. When there is that huge gap where voters don't trust politicians, to act in their interest on a particular issue, there's a huge desire for them to take the issue directly to the ballot box. Groups opposed to abortion rights say they were outspent in places like Kentucky, where voters rejected a proposed amendment seen as unfriendly to abortion rights. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington. Flooding from Tropical Storm Nicole is causing damage in Florida. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports climate change made the rare November storm worse. Nicole came ashore as a Category 1 hurricane and quickly weakened to a tropical storm. But it still caused widespread flooding. Coastal houses fell into the ocean near Daytona Beach, and ocean water poured into downtown Hollywood Beach. Climate change is partly to blame. Sea levels in the affected part of Florida have risen more than a foot in the last hundred years, and the area has seen rapid development and population rise, with lots of new buildings constructed right on the water. So storms don't need to be extreme to cause serious flood damage. Although hurricane season runs through November, hurricanes are relatively rare this late in the year. Scientists say warmer ocean water, also due to climate change, could make hurricane season longer. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Attendees at the UN's 27th Climate Change Conference in Egypt are discussing the connection between climate change and the frequency of extreme weather events. President Biden leaves tonight for COP27. He's also attending the G20 in Bali, where Biden's expected to meet personally with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. This 
is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Public Schools will likely have the same school transportation provider for at least another five years. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, its current provider, Transdev, was the only company to bid on a new contract with the district. Boston's on-time school bus performance has faced a lot of scrutiny during the district's contract with Transdev, which began in 2013. The state is currently investigating the district for its special education transportation. While changing vendors won't be an option for Boston, a district spokesperson says new requirements in the upcoming $17 million contract could help. Those include more incentives for good performance and stronger reporting requirements. The last time the school bus contract was up for bid, the district got two official proposals. The fact that Boston only got one bid this time fits a growing statewide pattern of declining competition in the school bus transportation industry. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Diesel prices continue to increase in Massachusetts. The average price is now $5.92 a gallon. That's up 14 cents from one week ago and up $2.35 from this time last year. A recent survey by the American Transportation Research Institute shows diesel prices are a top concern for the trucking industry, followed by a shortage of drivers. Cambridge-based drug maker Biogen is tapping Christopher Wiebacher to be its next CEO. He was the top executive at the pharmaceutical giant Sanofi. He was let go in 2014. Wiebacher takes over at Biogen for Michel Vonatsos. In May, he announced plans to leave the company after its Alzheimer's drug generated poor sales and questions from doctors and insurers over its price and effectiveness. Republicans in Connecticut have fallen short in an effort to put a member of their party in the U.S. House for the first time in more than a decade. This afternoon, the Associated Press declared incumbent Democratic Congresswoman Johanna Hayes the winner over Republican former state Senator George Logan in the state's 5th district. The race went uncalled for nearly two full days as the vote count showed the two candidates had been neck and neck. In the forecast, nice day today. Overnight tonight should be relatively mild, only falling to the low 50s. And tomorrow, Veterans Day, should be in for some rain, lots of clouds, highs pushing 70 degrees. Saturday could start off gray and rainy, then sunshine, temperatures in the low 70s, the mid-50s on Sunday. 68 degrees now in Boston at 406. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, with a curated selection of organic groceries, natural body care and supplements, and bulk refillery, cambridgenaturals.com. And Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. And I'm Elsa Chang. Well, it's looking like control of the U.S. Senate is going to come down to three very close races in three states. Georgia's Senate race will go to a runoff next month. And so for now, all eyes are on Arizona and Nevada, where the results are still being counted. We've got reporters out in the southwest, NPR's Deepa Shivaram in Las Vegas, Nevada, and NPR's Jimena Bustillo in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey to both of you. Hey. So, Deepa, I want to start with you because I understand Clark County's election department has wrapped up their daily press conference. What are we learning at this point? 
Yeah, so the Registrar of Voters here in Clark County, which encompasses Las Vegas, his name is Joe Gloria, and he's holding these daily press conferences that have been happening every day since Election Day to brief reporters, take questions. And what we've learned is that there are still about 50,000 ballots in Clark County that need to be counted. Gloria said that he thinks a majority of those ballots will be counted by Saturday. So that's the day we're all keeping an eye on. It's not going to be a holiday weekend for these election workers, and they're going to keep working through the weekend and into next week. And there are still ballots that are going to be counted after Monday as well. So it's not just ending on Saturday. That's not exactly the end all be all. Those are going to be some of the ballots that have to be cured, which means that the signatures on them didn't match up. And that's getting checked through the end of the business day on Monday. Plus, there's about 5,000 provisional ballots that were cast in person on Election Day. Those have to get certified and gone through the Secretary of State's office here, and they'll be counted midweek next week. And of course, all of this impacts these really tight races in Nevada. The one we're all watching, of course, is the Senate race with incumbent Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. Her Republican challenger is Adam Laxalt. Mm -hmm. But we're waiting for results on the governor's race as well and a few of these competitive House races, too. Oof. Okay, so a lot unresolved still. Jimena, Maricopa County in Arizona is in a similar situation, right? Like, what are election officials telling you right now? Yeah, absolutely. So in this county, you have three ways to vote, mail-in, drop-off, um, and in-person. According to election officials, state law requires all mail-in and dropped-off drop ballots to be individually signature verified. And then those ballots have to go through a bipartisan processing board, which is a team of two people that check the ballot. And then it goes into tabulation and is counted. This year, the county experienced a record number of these ballots. On Election Day itself, over 290,000 voters dropped off a ballot at a polling location on Election Day, as opposed to voting in person or mailing it in the day before or any time before. That's 100,000 more than last election, which held the record until this year. So it's important to remember that each state has different laws and rules, and the day of drop-offs are specific to Arizona. The calls, the calls day after the election are also not new for this state. For example, when Cinema won in 2018, you know, a different Senate seat in the state of Arizona, that was not called by the Associated Press until about a week after Election Day. Mm -hmm. The key question is the partisan split of the votes being tabulated today in Maricopa and how close they're running together, similar as Deepa just said for Nevada. That will determine if the Associated Press will be able to call the race for the Senate and the governor, which are the tightest right now as well. Right. Okay, well, Deepa, former President Trump has weighed in here posting on his platform Truth Social saying without any evidence that Clark County has a corrupt voting system. I'm curious, how have election officials responded to Trump? Yeah, this is something we were all kind of waiting and, and watching to see not only what the former president would say, but also, you know, a lot of these election deniers. They're running in Nevada, Secretary of State Adam Laxalt here in the Senate race in Arizona as well and all over the country. Um, how they're going to weigh in here as these, this process goes on and as we go, you know, into next week, more than a week after Election Day. And election officials here in Nevada were quick to respond to Trump. They said that what Trump said on his platform, again, without any evidence, uh, is outrageous and that he's misinformed 
informed about the law and the process here in Nevada, which, by the way, by the law, it's designed to take this long. It's not out of the blue that we don't have some of these ballots counted. And Gloria, the registrar of voters that I talked about earlier, he said there are concerns about security with, with Trump's comments, especially for these election workers. There's hundreds of them here in Clark County alone uh, when Trump says these things. Here's what he said earlier today. Unfortunate comments like the one that came out today from former President Trump uh, gets certain people very fired up and they're convinced that we are doing things that are inappropriate or against the law. And that's just not the case. All right. That and we is, also know that Adam Laxalt. I'm so sorry. We're going to leave it there. That is NPR's Deepa Shivaram in Las Vegas and Jimena Bustillo in Phoenix. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. The 2022 midterm elections were neither a mandate for Republicans nor a rejection of President Biden. Still, the GOP is poised to take control of the House, and that means a divided government is likely coming back to Washington. NPR White House correspondent Ozma Khalid reports on what the midterms mean for Biden. The president has made it clear that regardless of the final tally in these elections, he's going to try to work across the aisle. The American people have made clear, I think, that they expect Republicans to be prepared to work with me as well. Biden suggested this could be easier to do than when he was vice president in 2010. In those midterms, the GOP captured 63 seats in the House. This time, the likely Republican victory in the House will be smaller, although which party controls the Senate is still up in the air. Biden sees these close margins as an opportunity for leverage. There's always enough people in the, on the other team, whether it's Democrat or Republican, that the opposite party can make an appeal to and maybe pick them off to get the help. But with a Congress that is so polarized, there may be little room for compromise. Maria Urbina is with the progressive organization Indivisible. Of course, they should always talk about things that would tangibly improve people's lives and secure their rights, but it's really hard to see where that's real. There may be room for moments of bipartisanship, for example, on military aid to Ukraine. But experts say most of Biden's agenda will likely come to a standstill. They say even the most basic things like funding the government or raising the debt ceiling could become a grind. Though Fez Shakir, an advisor on the left, sees a messaging upside for Democrats in this potential stalemate. You get an easier contrast because the president can be on his front foot suggesting things that he knows that Republicans might oppose. But he's going to say this is where we stand and that's where they stand. That conversation has been difficult the past two years when Democrats control controlled both the House and the Senate, but fought amongst themselves. Shakir says Biden also has other paths to accomplish some change. The president's going to probably lean harder into foreign policy. That's often what happens when you have split control over government. Biden leaves for a trip tonight where he'll meet China's President Xi Jinping. It's a high-stakes meeting for issues like trade and defense. Divided government also means the White House can now focus on administering all the money that Congress has already agreed to for infrastructure, climate and manufacturing. But House Republicans intend to investigate Biden on everything from the Afghanistan withdrawal to the business dealings of his son, Hunter Biden. And although investigations might put the White House on the defensive, they could ultimately backfire on Republicans. Brendan Buck is a former top aide to GOP House Speakers Paul Ryan and John Boehner. He says there are dangers in overreaching. When a Congress gets kicked out, it's because people just didn't like what the other party was doing. It's not necessarily a validation of the new party. If Republicans 
find themselves thinking that it was all about them. They're at risk of seeing some backlash themselves. And that's what we saw in 2010 into 2012. That was a lesson learned when Republicans convincingly won the House in 2010, only to see Barack Obama win the presidency again two years later. Yesterday, Biden said it is his intention to run for re-election. Polls show many Democrats are half-hearted about a second Biden run. Bill Galston, a former advisor to President Bill Clinton, says the midterm results could quell some debate. This is going to diminish whatever pressure they might have been from within the Democratic Party for President Biden to stand down in favor of a fresh face. But the president's approval ratings remain underwater. Biden says he hopes to make a firm decision on another run by early next year. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Florida today is cleaning up after yet another hurricane. Hurricane Nicole hit the state near Vero Beach early this morning with 75-mile-per-hour winds. After coming ashore, it was downgraded to a tropical storm. NPR's Greg Allen reports that since records have been kept, this is the latest in the season a hurricane has ever made landfall on Florida's Atlantic coast. Nicole hit as a Category 1 storm. As hurricanes go, that's on the low end of the scale. Authorities ordered evacuations for people living on barrier islands along much of Florida's Atlantic coast because of the threat of storm surge. As Nicole passed through Florida today, local authorities and Governor Ron DeSantis agreed it could have been a lot worse. You do have downed trees, you have power lines, you have some road washouts, combined winds and storm surge. We've seen beach erosion, especially in areas that had already seen erosion from Hurricane Ian. From Fort Lauderdale to Daytona Beach, the heavy surf and storm surge damaged piers, washed away dunes, and threatened homes and other structures. In Volusia County, authorities evacuated 19 condominium buildings and hotels, also 40 single-family homes. As the beach washed away, at least one home collapsed and others were in danger of doing so. Volusia County Manager George Rechtenwald said residents won't be able to return until the structures are inspected and declared safe. The structural damage along our coastline is unprecedented. We've never experienced anything like this before. Until Nicole developed in the Atlantic this week, many in Florida thought hurricane season was over. The season doesn't officially end until November 30th, but Florida rarely sees landfalling hurricanes this late in the year, especially on its Atlantic coast. The last one was in 1935. Jeff Masters, a meteorologist with Yale Climate Connections, says there are a few reasons Nicole formed so late. The East Coast had a very warm fall, and high-level winds in the Atlantic, which can limit hurricane formation, weren't as strong as usual. And we're in a period of global warming where the ocean temperatures are warmer than they've ever been. About 1.2 degrees centigrade warmer climate than back in the 1800s. With warmer ocean temperatures, Master says we've been seeing hurricanes form earlier than past years. And as Nicole has shown, we're likely to see them forming later in the season. Greg Allen, NPR News, Port St. Lucie, Florida. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, Marvel's Black Panther sequel, Wakanda Forever, a review by critic Bob Mondello. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Best Barry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bestberry.com. On Wall Street, stocks were on a rocket ship today. The Dow rose about three and three quarters percent. That's 1,200 points. It finally settled at 33,715. S&P pulled in even more, rising more than 5.5% to close at 39.56. The Nasdaq jumped 7.3% to end the day at 11,114. 
This is WBUR Marketplace has all the details coming up at 6.30. It's now 4.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Boston Ballet's As Anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsythe, including a world premiere, now through November 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Join Circle Round podcast host Rebecca Shear this Saturday at WBUR City Space to celebrate the launch of her new children's book. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. In the forecast, it's been a pretty nice day today. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy, breezy, not too chilly, only falling to about 52. Then tomorrow could inch all the way to 70, partial sunshine in the morning, some clouds moving in during the afternoon, the chance of rain tomorrow as well. For Saturday, maybe gray skies early, some sunshine later on, the low 70s on Saturday, then Sunday, sunny and cooler temperatures in the mid-50s. 68 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Melissa Nadworny. At the end of his eighth term representing Iowa in the U.S. Senate, the newly re-elected Chuck Grassley will be 95 years old. The Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, is 82. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is 80. In fact, nearly 25% of Congress is over 70 years old. That's the highest it's ever been. For more on this, let's bring in Walt Hickey. He is the senior data editor at Insider and led the data analysis on a project called Red, White, and Gray, about the oldest legislature in American history. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much for having me. So your project at Insider dove into a lot of numbers and found that this trend really started about 30 years ago. What happened back then? Like, what changed? You know, it's no surprise that the government is slightly older than the people that it governs. This has Mm. always kind of been the case. Uh, But what we've really seen is just kind of a major shift since the 90s that has been basically changing how Congress represents America, where even though half the country is under the age of 38, only about 5% of Congress is. Wow. Yeah, so it sounds like the people who are elected are staying in office longer, maybe because of redistricting, maybe because of money and politics, and that's kind of aging Congress. Yeah, I mean, the incentives to stick around are pretty good. I mean, yeah. particularly if you look in the Senate and on the Democratic side of the House, they reward seniority with power. The campaign finance has had a lot of corrosive effects at times on American politics, the the billion-dollar elections that we're currently in now. And, you know, it hasn't had an impact where if you are an older member, you're able to shore up more capital to kind of fend off primary challengers and hold on to your seats in generals at a rate that's a little bit better than, you know, younger members. The, the other kind of big effect that we've seen is, you know, we just had a redistricting cycle. And oftentimes in redistricting cycles, members are forced into member-on-member primaries. And what we found looking over the past 
past uh, several redistricting cycles is that older members are more likely to survive that. They win about 60% of the time. And so you just kind of have all these structural impacts that have kind of gotten a little bit worse over the past 30 years. The Republican Party tends to be more associated with older supporters, but the Democratic Party actually has a lot of older lawmakers currently in office. Yeah. Why is that? It's a really interesting kind of paradoxical thing that you're highlighting, but it comes down to these structural factors, right? So one thing that's interesting about Republicans versus Democrats in the House of Representatives, for instance, is that Republicans have term limits on committee leaderships and committee chairmanships, whereas Democrats, on the other hand, they value seniority when it comes to giving these positions. And so there's a huge incentive in Democratic Party politics to wait around and stick around. You know, this is for a couple different reasons, one of which is, again, you know, the Democratic Party has it's important to them that they kind of take the minority communities that they represent and give them a chance to attain power. Mm. And, you know, so you'll see some of the folks who have benefited the most from this are folks in places like the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. And that's where some of the strongest support for the seniority based legislation is, where in the Republican Party, you know, you get your bite at the apple and then you get to move on. And if you don't want to be a backbencher anymore, then you can move on to other things in public life. Whereas in democratic politics, there's a huge incentive to stay as long in the House of Representatives as you can, because tomorrow you're always going to be more powerful than you were yesterday. For this project, you also did some polling that touched on how Americans feel about the aging of their lawmakers. What did you find? Yes, we worked with Morning Consult and we ran a survey basically just diving into this issue and really getting at it. And what we found is that the American people have really strong opinions about this. Hmm. Um, 41% of respondents said that the political leaders' ages are a problem, a major problem, in fact. And then another 37% said that it was a minor problem. So you're looking at substantial bipartisan majorities of this country who are seeing that the aging of America's government is an issue, right? And and we found that this kind of held across parties, and we found that it actually held across age groups. 75% of respondents were in favor of a maximum age for members of Congress, which is on par with the number of people who want maximum ages for police officers and pilots. Like, this is something that people really care about. That's Walt Hickey. He is a senior data editor at Insider and led the data analysis on a project called Red, White, and Gray. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. When actor Chadwick Boseman, who brought warmth and intelligence to Black Panther, died of cancer two years ago, Marvel Studios faced a decision. The first film had made more than a billion dollars, so there would definitely be another one. But how? Start the story over? Just recast the role and move on? Well, critic Bob Mondello says that unlike other superhero epics, in Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, the death of the film's title character is acknowledged from the very start. The images come fast and painful. Shuri reading the anguish in the Queen Mother's eyes before she can even speak the words, your brother is with the ancestors. A funeral procession, frenetic, mournful, all in blazing white. Even the Marvel logo, usually teeming with superheroes, this time filled exclusively with images of Chadwick Boseman's King T'Challa. The grief is inescapable. Wakanda brought low, but hardly bowed. An attack on an outreach facility. Tactical weapons, no match for Wakanda's tactics. Where is your spear? Should you get me this to try? Glowing daggers. You know, I like them better. Our foremothers gave us this spear because it is precise, elegant, and deadly. General Okoye of the Dora Milaje. 
It will not change under my watch. Other things that will not change, at least on writer-director Ryan Coogler's watch, Black Panther's futuristic take on real-world history, in which a proud African nation resists industrial powers that want to strip it of natural resources. This particular attack was an attempt to steal vibranium, the meteor-borne substance that gives Wakanda its power. When the queen addresses the UN, it's to warn the world's colonialists to back off. Further attempts on our resources will be considered an act of aggression and met with a much steeper Kugler amplifies the argument by bringing another long-hidden civilization into the mix this time, an underwater kingdom called Talokan, descended from the ancient Mayans, and led by a ruler who surprises Angela Bassett's grieving queen and Letitia Wright's despondent Shuri by approaching them on a Wakandan riverside. Who are you? And how did you get in here? From the water. This place is amazing. My mother told stories about a place like this. A protected land with people that never have to change who they were. I am not a woman who enjoys repeating herself. Who are you? I have many names. My people call me Ahkukunkan. Well, my enemies call me Namor. Played by Tenoch Huerta, this guy has wings on his ankles and a chip on his shoulder, one that goes back centuries. He's come because he's looking for partners in a plan the world powers aren't going to like much. I need to know if Wakanda is an ally or an enemy. I'll leave you to find that out. But his presence means that when this film starts globe-hopping James Bond style, it skips the usual world capitals for spots like Haiti and the Yucatan Peninsula. Also that the undersea camera work is stellar, even if the Wakandans are slow to take this new guy seriously. We should find the fishman and kill him. Never mind, with superhuman strength and those wings on his ankles to let him zip around with little regard for physics, he's certainly diverting. As you'll have gathered, Wakanda Forever isn't just an exercise in mourning. In two hours and 40 minutes, it finds plenty of time for whale riding and fierce battles with all manner of spear handling. It is still, in other words, a Marvel movie, though a somber and at times a quite resonant one. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, Maxwell Alejandro Frost, the first member of Gen Z to be elected to Congress. Breezy this evening and tonight, partly cloudy skies down around 52 for a low. Tomorrow, partly sunny and milder, could reach 70. Things may turn overcast during the afternoon with some showers possible. And then the weekend is looking mixed. Some heavy rain on Saturday, sunshine later around 72, sunny and cooler on Sunday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. I'm Christopher Leiden. Next time on Open Source, politics is a form of panic attack, and all through it, search and an argument around new right republicanism, class and culture warfare, and a rethink of Uncle Sam's role in the world. The new right is next on Open Source. Tonight at 9, Sunday at 2, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. 
President Biden will meet next week with China's president on the sidelines of the Group of 20 Summit in Bali, Indonesia. This will be the first face-to-face meeting between the two leaders since Biden became president and Xi Jinping was awarded another five-year term. It also comes amid increasingly strained relations with Beijing, as we hear from NPR's Franco Ordonez. The region is a huge trading partner on all sorts of goods, technology, for example. But the big thing, of course, is pushing back on Chinese influence. China has made some inroads in the region with the South Pacific, for example. And that has served as a bit of a wake-up call for the administration. NPR's Franco Ordonez, Biden's foreign trip comes with some momentum following the midterm elections this week. It includes stops at the U.N. Climate Summit in Egypt and a gathering of Asian leaders in Cambodia. Georgia Republicans are still disjointed on whether they'll support former football star Herschel Walker in a tight election for Georgia's U.S. Senate seat, which is headed for a runoff early next month between Walker and Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock. From member station WABE, Lily Oppenheimer reports. Outgoing State Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan has some heavy criticism for state Republicans who support Walker's race just because former President Donald Trump endorsed him. So it was the perfect concoction for too many Republicans, and we didn't put the best person forward, in my opinion. It was other folks on the ballot that would have, I believe, been an easier win. And Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger says he wishes Walker the best, but avoided answering a question about if he's fit for the job. No candidate got the 50 percent of votes needed for an outright win. So Georgians are preparing for a lot more campaign attack ads through Thanksgiving. For NPR News, I'm Lily Oppenheimer in Atlanta. Stocks finish solidly higher on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts State Agency that approves energy projects has given tentative approval to grant a special permit for an electrical substation project in East Boston. The final decision is due later this month. The action is still being seen as a blow to residents and environmental justice advocates who have been fighting the project for years. WBR's Miriam Wasser has more. The utility Eversource asked the state for this special certificate to expedite the environmental permitting process. If it's awarded, it will supersede the 14 remaining environmental permits and licenses Eversource needs to start construction. John Walkie is with the nonprofit Greenroots, which challenged the permit. He says the tentative decision isn't surprising, but it is infuriating. This project keeps just barreling along through this system, despite the number of valid and common sense concerns that have been raised by residents, by advocates, by elected officials. One of those concerns is safety. The substation will be built in a flood zone near a playground and tanks of jet fuel. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Atlantic herring commercial fishermen are asking the U.S. Supreme Court to settle a dispute with federal regulators. The fishermen in New England, New York, and New Jersey want to end a rule that requires them to pay for the cost of federal fish monitors who go out with them on their boats. The government requires the monitors collect data for future rules and to ensure regulatory compliance. The Biden administration has declined to comment on the legal case. And a beloved figure in the New England folk music scene has died. Dick Pleasance was a longtime music host on WUMB, GBH, and he was a promoter. He introduced local audiences to the music of everyone from Tom Rush to Nancy Griffith, Mark Arelli, and Patty Larkin. Betsy Siggins is the founder of Folk New England Archives and former director of Club 47, now known as Passim. She says Dick Pleasance cultivated the folk music audience in Boston in part by being a mensch and a mentor to musicians. 
he made people feel that they mattered and that their music, no matter what level it was at, was important. Dick Pleasance died Tuesday. He had lived with Parkinson's disease for some 20 years. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Metropolitan College, offering part-time graduate programs in health communication 100% online. Learn storytelling and media strategies vital to healthcare marketing and communication. Learn more at bu.edu slash met. Tonight should be partly cloudy, pretty breezy, not too chilly, only falling to 52. Tomorrow could inch all the way to about 70, partial sunshine in the morning, then some clouds moving in during the afternoon, the chance of some rain as well. 68 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. And I'm Elsa Chang. Not long after progressive Democrat Maxwell Alejandro Frost was elected to the House, he got a call from the president. You see, Frost is 25 years old, and he is the first member of Gen Z to be elected to Congress. President Biden wanted to congratulate him and to share that he was also in his 20s when he won his first Senate seat. I have no doubt he's off to an incredible start and what I'm sure will be a long, distinguished career. Next year, Frost will represent a central Florida district, including parts of Orlando. But before he heads to Washington, D.C., he joins us now. Maxwell Frost, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, you know, when I was 25, I was still living in a dorm room, so congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. So what do you see as the most urgent legislative priorities facing your generation? I think there's so much um, that we have to tackle, but I think the economy is the top one right now. As far as my generation is concerned, we know that there are so many people who are dealing with crushing debt. We know there are folks who are not making enough money. We need to have a thrivable wage. We know that people deserve to have health care and to be healthy and not worry about whether or not they're going to spend their money on rent or medicine, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's building an economy that works for everybody. And, you know, we as Gen Z know that we're not in this debt because – Uh, We live beyond our means, but it's because we've been denied the means to live and we're interested in fixing those problems. Well, let me ask you, you know, you've been an organizer for the anti-gun violence group March for Our Lives, but now you are going to be a lawmaker from a state with a Republican governor, two Republican senators, a state legislature, which will have a Republican supermajority. How do you see yourself working with all of them to achieve your agenda? Well, for me, it's about sitting down and having conversations in the first place, right, Mm -hmm. to talk about what are the problems that we agree on, because we have to agree that there's a problem in the first place, and how do we move forward. But what we're seeing is there's this increasingly divided um, atmosphere, especially with folks like Governor Ron DeSantis, who are leaning into this far-right MAGA messaging, um, which is dangerous, right? Um, He doesn't want to sit down with people. He doesn't want to talk with folks. Um, That's why there's a video of me um, talking with him at at an event. I had to do a direct action, interrupt him at something to ask him what his plan was going to be on gun violence. And he 
said, no one wants to hear from you. Uh, but then a few months later, I was elected to Congress uh, in that in that district. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I'd say I, I'm interested in sitting down with folks. But unfortunately, um, I think with this new far right MAGA movement, we're seeing a lot of people not wanting to sit down anymore. So we have to bring voters together to pick leaders who are willing. Um, to work well, together. you know, that said, you are very likely going to be entering a Republican-led House next January. Like, how do you realistically see yourself advancing your platform in that chamber? Well, we know that, you know, there was a predict- predicted wet, uh, red tsunami, red wave that didn't happen. And so I'm still confident that Democrats can hold the House. But if Republicans do take it, it looks like it'll be a very, very slim majority. And there are Republicans out there who had very tight races who know that in order to hold their seat, they're going to need to work in a bipartisan way um, to keep the trust of their constituents and make sure that they deliver. We're just coming off of two years. We've signed major bills into law. Um, the infrastructure uh, infrastructure package, the bipartisan bill on gun violence. Um, and so there's a lot um, there that was delivered. And people are going to expect that to continue. And I know there's going to be Republicans out there who want to work with Democrats to ensure that we do that um, and that we send things to the president's desk that he will sign. Maxwell Alejandro Frost, representative-elect from Florida's 10th District and the first member of Gen Z to win election to Congress. Congratulations, and thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Thanks for having me. Let's turn now to the whole of Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis was re-elected by a margin of nearly 20 points. Incumbent Senator Marco Rubio also won by double digits, and... Republicans will soon have a supermajority in the state legislature. At least this year, what was once a swing state turned quite red. Here to talk about this shift is Tampa Bay Times political editor Emily Mahoney. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks so much for having me. So only 537 votes famously separated George W. Bush from Al Gore in Florida in 2000. What has happened in Florida since then? Well, the state has obviously changed a lot. A lot has changed from that that famous moment in 2000. And I think that change happened slowly at first, um, but Republicans have been working for a long time in Florida to first off increase the number of Republicans who are registered in the state of Florida. And we saw recently Republicans surpass Democrats in terms of their voter registration numbers recently for the first time in state history. So I think that we can't really overstate how big of a shift that is just in terms of raw numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I was talking to a a high ranking Republican about the results and he said that, you know, this kind of represented a candle and Governor Ron DeSantis poured gasoline on that Mm. candle. He has really drawn a lot of attention to the state as sort of a Republican-led, um, I think he calls it an oasis of freedom during the pandemic and has, you know, most likely caused more Republicans to move to the state of Florida as well and really sort of accelerated that that transformation that was already happening. Were there any regions that normally vote for Democrats that swung towards Republicans in this election? Absolutely, yes. Miami-Dade County, which is the largest county in the state, went red this time for the first time in two decades, and as did Palm Beach County, which was really not something that even the most sort of enthusiastic Republicans that I had talked to before election night, and nobody had predicted that. The red wave that some expected didn't really materialize nationally, but it did in Florida. Why is Florida so different? Exactly. Well, you have to ask what is different about the state of Florida, and I think 
you know, Governor DeSantis really has to be part of that conversation. He really has made the state sort of the focal point of the Republican Party nationally. Um, but the other thing is also that nationally Democrats sort of gave up on Florida this cycle um, and, and chose to spend their money elsewhere. And, you know, you can argue whether or not that was a, a correct strategy, but they did obviously have victories elsewhere, but their margins in Florida were just, the losses are so gigantic in part because the Democratic candidates there received very little support from national donors and really faced a massive fundraising disadvantage. So they weren't really able to get their message out there. Mm -hmm. And finally, Hurricane Ian also sort of, I think, sort of put the nail in the coffin of some of the top Democratic candidates. Uh, it really sort of kind of minimized the discussion of issues like abortion, where they tend to pull higher, and gave DeSantis sort of uninhibited airtime looking gubernatorial very shortly before Election Day. We just heard from Maxwell Frost. Uh, do you think Florida's Democrats have an opportunity to take back some votes? Well, he, his optimism uh, is definitely something that Democrats need an injection of right now. There's a lot of kind of despondency, frankly, within the Democratic Party in the state uh, because of the numbers that we've seen. And so it's really going to take people <laughs> like Frost with energy and with, with that kind of optimistic spirit, I think, to sort of perhaps pull them out of what is actually a, a new low for the party in the state in terms of numbers. Yeah. Emily Mahoney of the Tampa Bay Times, thank you for your reporting. Thanks so much. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. The pandemic changed a lot of things about schools. One big thing is that schools across the country now recognize they can't educate children unless they also address their mental health. Now, the second largest school district in Texas is taking action. They've sent mental health professionals to a special training that focuses specifically on how to help kids cope with trauma and grief. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee is in Dallas at the workshop, and she joins us now. Hello. Hi, Alyssa. So a workshop specifically on grief and trauma. Yeah. Why now? So, you know, this is a really different time since the pandemic. Um, so many kids have lost parents, grandparents, other loved ones, be it to COVID, gun violence, other health issues. You know, I spoke earlier with one of the social workers who's here. Her name is Diane Bippert, and she's been with the Dallas Independent School District for nearly 15 years. And she says, you know, before the pandemic, if she'd ask preschoolers or elementary school kids if they'd experienced a death or loss, they would say things like, hmm, I, you know, I lost a tooth or I lost my puppy. But the pandemic has made these kids just all too familiar with death. I was just recently in a second grade classroom and I said, has anyone else experienced any sort of death or loss? And about every child raised their hand and had a story about someone who close to them that had died. Most of these kids in the school district are from communities that have been hit the hardest by all aspects of the pandemic. And we're not just talking about debts. We're talking about parents losing jobs, families losing homes, kids not having regular access to food or experiencing domestic violence. Mm. So all kinds of traumas. But I would think that social workers and psychologists who work in schools have have already been trained in how to recognize and respond to children who are 
dealing with all this trauma, right? Sure, many do, but not all. And the school district has hired many more professionals to deal with sort of the scale of things. And many of them haven't really been trained in how trauma and grief manifests differently in kids. You know, it's not just a mini version of how that looks like in adults. Kids are unique. So, for example, often when kids are struggling emotionally, they'll act out and do things that are labeled as disruptive um, in classrooms, behaviors that have become much more common across the school district. Here's what psychologist Monica Munoz told me about what she's seeing. A lot of aggression and fighting, a lot of social anxiety, which is very new. Um, school refusal, even from high-functioning or high-performing children. And, you know, when teachers see these behaviors, they often think the kids have conduct or attention issues or aren't interested in their classes. But if you talk to kids about what's happening in their life, you might learn that they haven't eaten for two days or mom's sick or dad's passed away and their whole life is turned upside down. So what's happening at the workshop that's going to be helpful to educators? So, you know, they've received this big manual with worksheets and exercises that they're going through, basically a set of protocols that will help them assess and treat kids dealing with traumatic experiences. And these are all techniques that research has shown is effective. And, you know, by the end of today, these 80 or so mental health staff will have more tools and be on the same page on how to better support grieving and traumatized students. NPR's Read 2 Chatterjee will have more from that workshop next week. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Alyssa. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The comedy drama series Atlanta centers on the lives of a group of black millennials. The show comes to an end tonight. Our story is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Russian Icons, presenting Artists for Ukraine, transforming ammo boxes into icons. More at museumofrussianicons.org. And the British International School of Boston, thinking beyond traditional education, collaborating with MIT and Juilliard. Open house November 20th. Register at bisboston.org. Should be breezy this evening and overnight tonight. Partly cloudy skies tonight, down around 52 for a low. Tomorrow, partly sunny and milder, could reach 70. And then things may turn overcast during the afternoon. Some showers possible. The weekend is looking mixed. Some heavy rain early Saturday, then sunshine later. Breezy and milder, up around 72. Sunday should turn sunny and colder. Temperatures in the mid-50s. It is 67 degrees now in Boston. The time is 449. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. Scientists are putting housing through its paces in labs. The actual buildings, I mean. We can actually recreate a Category 3 hurricane in this facility um, using those fans. I'm Kai Rizdal, Reinforcement Engineering, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Alyssa Nadwani. Let's talk about Atlanta. Nope, this is not another story about the runoff election in Georgia. We are talking about television, FX groundbreaking comedy, which is ending tonight after four seasons. The show is centered on the lives of a group of black millennials living in Atlanta. But it's also known for its sometimes surreal episodes about entirely different characters. Like this one, told as a mockumentary about a case of mistaken identity, leading Disney's board to elect a black man as its CEO. We all voted for this guy named Tom Washington, but we didn't realize that Tom's first name was actually Thompson. Thomas Washington was an animator. People were pretty upset. They voted for the wrong man. Here to talk about this with us is Eric Deggins, NPR's TV critic. Hey, Eric. Happy to talk with you about TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the show and, and why TV critics consider it to be so important? Sure. Well, you know, this show debuted way back in 2016. It was the creation of star Donald Glover, who was then known as a co-star on NBC's sitcom Community. And the central story features Glover as Earn Marks, a dropout from Princeton who winds up managing his cousin, an up-and-coming rapper known as Paperboy, who's played by Brian Tyree Henry. And they have an oddball friend who's played by Lakeith Stanfield, and Earn has a daughter with his on-again, off-again girlfriend who's played by Zazie Beetz. Now, Atlanta tells these stories about the lives of these black millennials that kind of touch on racism, whiteness, classism, the perils of success, the sometimes odd rhythms of life in urban black America. And early on, the show won Golden Globes, Emmys, Peabody Awards. They ma it made stars out of the cast, especially Glover, who was a writer, producer, director, and even music supervisor on the show. Yeah, so when the show first came out, there was a ton of buzz, but... Critics have said the show's more recent seasons have had less impact. Do you agree? Yeah, I kind of do agree. I mean, you know, one reason Atlanta had such an impact initially is because Glover and director Hiro Murai and the producers helped craft this show that often introduced these surreal stories and scenes that took viewers to new places. Now, some people have called this Afro-surrealism. They had Paperboy play in a celebrity basketball tournament against Justin Bieber, but they cast a black actor as Bieber to show how jarring it might feel to see a black star allowed to act out the way that Bieber often mm -hmm. does. They um, had characters who seemed like parodies of Michael Jackson and Tyler Perry. That episode about the black man who was made CEO of Disney explored ideas about racism behind beloved Disney characters, even though FX is owned by Disney. <laughs> so I interviewed Glover, Barack, and some of the other folks from the show at the South by Southwest conference in Austin earlier this year. And I got the sense that they developed these moments to be creative, sometimes just to see an amazing image or scene without much concern about how it connected to the other story. And when Atlanta first debuted, there weren't a lot of shows telling these kinds of stories like this about black culture and black people. Now there's more diversity on TV and, you know, maybe it doesn't feel quite as unique. Yeah, that's NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. Sometimes it really is all about that base, especially at a science lab at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada, which doubles as a music venue. Scientists there are studying the musical ingredients that make us want to dance. 
And during a live concert by the electronic duo Orphix, the researchers found that bursts of low-frequency bass, a kind you can't even hear, made dancing volunteers move their bodies 12% more than normal. The results appear this week in the journal Current Biology, and neuroscientist Daniel Cameron was the lead author. Hey there. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. Okay, so I got to hear more about this dance party slash science project that you all did. How did it work exactly? We had this uh, concert, Orphix, this fantastic electronic music duo, was performing at the lab. And we had a whole you know bunch of attendees for the concert who liked this music, who were coming to dance and listen. And we asked them if they wanted to participate in our experiment. All they needed to do was just wear a little headband on their head that had a motion capture sensor. Uh-huh. And then fill out some questionnaires, and then they could just go and enjoy the concert. Oh so- my god, I would have totally signed up for this experiment. <laughs> so I, I love to dance, and I, I will really get going when there's like this really loud, pulsing beat. But what's fascinating is your study is telling me maybe what's really getting me going is something I can't even hear. Like, what is the mechanism causing me to want to dance more? We know that the vestibular system, which is our sense of balance, is the inner ear structures uh-huh. that give us a sense of where our head is in space. That, that system is sensitive to low frequency stimulation, especially if it's loud. We also know that our tactile system, so our sense of touch, yeah. the mechanoreceptors on our skin and in our body that move from vibration, that's also sensitive to low-frequency stimulation, low-frequency sound. So if you've ever stood right in front of a loudspeaker at a concert, you can kind of feel it shaking in your chest. That's the tactile stimulation of of sound when it's loud. So we think that those systems might be picking up on these low frequencies that you couldn't even hear or detect. And that's feeding into our motor system in the brain, the movement control system in our brain. So it's adding a little bit of gain. It's giving a little more energy from that stimulation through those systems. You know, I am one of those people who can't not move when I hear music. (laughs) And I get that not everybody's like that. But can I just ask you, like, at a really, really basic level, do you have any idea why people dance at all? I mean, why do humans dance is kind of a large-scale question that's really hard to test as well. And there's definitely ideas and and work on this. Um, You know, why would it be evolutionarily adaptive for us to dance? So we know that moving together in synchrony when we're making music together and dancing together leads to social bonding. We feel better about the people we're with. We feel more connected with them after we have kind of activities in which we're moving in synchrony together. So you can imagine this has um, potential advantage for for groups throughout, you know, the the long history of, of our species. We also know that people use music and movement and for things like regulating emotions. So you see this a lot across the world throughout history with babies and taking care of infants. We try to soothe them. We sing yeah. to them and we rock them along. Uh-huh. So this idea of moving and, and singing and modulating arousal is also you know, a functional thing to do. So there may be adaptive value in, in those kinds of things. And other people have worked on this question, but it's a hard thing to test, yeah, the evolutionary totally. uh, reasons for, for dancing. But we've uncovered with this study one of the ingredients for how we dance and what makes us want to dance a little bit more. Daniel Cameron is a cognitive neuroscientist at McMaster University in Ontario. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass.
And we are all about All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft, used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, &H, the Handel and Haydn Society. With The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart's Greatest Comedy, November 17th and 18th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Inflation slowed down last month, a good sign for the Federal Reserve and its aggressive rate increases, but consumers are still feeling the pinch. Markets are really eager to declare victory for the Fed on the inflation front. You know, I think it's premature. An inflation update coming up. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Twitter has overhauled its system of giving verified accounts a blue check mark. Now there's chaos in the system. Election deniers were on the ballot in several states on Tuesday, and they were running for offices that oversee elections. Secretary of State. There will some, be some people who occupy these positions who will choose to be politicians first and election administrators second or not at all. An election denier recap coming up. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street. It was way up today. Coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is praising the latest figures from the Labor Department, showing the rate of inflation fell last month, but warned that it's going to take some time to get price increases back to their normal levels. That's why it's so critical for us to pass important legislation this year to lower those costs for families. And I know it's going to take time to implement our entire economic agenda, which we already passed, and for folks to feel it in their day-to-day -day lives. But I think folks are going to see it in the next few months. Consumer prices in October were up 7.7 percent from a year ago. That's a slower pace of inflation than September's 8.2 percent rate. The latest report sent stocks on Wall Street soaring today at the close. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 1,201 points. The Nasdaq Composite rose 760. The S&P 500 also traded higher, up 207 points. A number of House and Senate races have yet to be called one day after the midterm elections. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports it will be weeks before all of the final results are known. 
Control of the House and Senate at this hour is still unknown. Republicans look like they are still on track to pick up the House, but by a smaller margin than they had hoped, anywhere from half a dozen to about a dozen seats. In the Senate, we're looking at three seats still in Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia. Georgia is officially going to a runoff December 6th. Arizona is a state where Democrats right now are in the lead. Nevada, the Republican is in the lead, but is expected to get even tighter. So waiting on both of those as Republicans and Democrats need to win two out of three of those final three races for control of the Senate. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. A New Jersey man has been arrested and charged with making threats to attack synagogues. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports the FBI recently warned of a broad threat to temples in the state. The Justice Department says 18-year-old Omar Al-Katul was arrested in Sayreville, New Jersey. He's been charged with one count of transmitting threats earlier this month. According to the charging document, Al-Katul shared over a social media app a document he had written. Excerpts of the document cited in court papers include an anti-Semitic rant and talk about attacking Jewish people or a synagogue specifically. The FBI discovered these materials during a consensual search of Al-Katul's iPhone. His arrest comes a week after the FBI's Newark field office warned of a broad threat to synagogues in New Jersey, which led authorities to take protective measures in response. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Recapping stocks on Wall Street, the Dow was up 1,201 points at the close today. The Nasdaq Composite up 760. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston area schools that kept masking requirements in place for a longer period saw fewer COVID cases than those that didn't. That's according to a study in the New England Journal of Medicine. WBUR's Rob Lane has more. The study finds school districts in greater Boston had largely similar COVID rates before statewide masking rules lifted in February. But once districts started making their own decisions about masks, those numbers diverged. Study author Tori Cowger is with Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Her team found schools that opted to lift mask rules saw nearly 45 more COVID cases per thousand students and staff over about four months. And that rate translates into 12,000 additional cases in the greater Boston area, which represent 30 percent of all cases that occurred over that time frame. Cowger says the findings are in line with previous research on the effectiveness of masks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. The number of people filing new claims for unemployment in the state rose by nearly 700 last week. Nearly 5,400 people sought benefits. That's a jump of nearly 15 percent from the week before. This fall, a series of tech companies have announced job cuts in the state, including Twitter, Starry, and Cyber Reason. There's a new discovery involving the space shuttle explosion that killed seven astronauts, including Framingham native and New Hampshire teacher Krista McAuliffe. NASA says a TV documentary crew has found one of the largest sections of the shuttle Challenger that's ever been located. The crew was looking for the wreckage of a World War II plane, and it found part of the Challenger in waters off the coast of Florida near Cape Canaveral. The shuttle exploded after liftoff in 1986. The Jack Kerouac Foundation is starting to raise funds for a new museum and performance center in Lowell. The facility will honor the late writer who's from Lowell. The site will be a former Catholic church where Kerouac was an altar boy and where his funeral was held. Foundation board member David Wallet believes the center will help transform the community. Art and poetry can actually change a neighborhood and make things better. That's one reason why this church became uh, a major part of it that I just wanted to see done. 
But just for our neighborhood alone, this would be just incredible, the, the change that it would bring. The foundation says it needs $15 million to purchase, renovate, and operate the property. In the forecast, 64 degrees now. Tonight should be partly cloudy, pretty breezy, not too chilly, only falling to about 52. Tomorrow could make it all the way to about 70 degrees. Partial sunshine in the morning and some clouds moving in during the afternoon. The chance of some rain as well. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadwarney. And I'm Elsa Chang. Here's something you haven't heard in a while. Good news about inflation. Yes, prices are still going up, but not as fast as they have been. And some prices are actually coming down. That news today sent stock prices soaring. The Dow Jones Industrial Average jumped more than 1,200 points. But even though inflation eased a little bit last month, it will still cost more this year to get some of those traditional Thanksgiving trips. And to talk more about that, we're joined now by NPR's Scott Horsley. Hey, Scott. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so what brought inflation down last month? And how far exactly did it fall? Annual inflation in October was 7.7%. That's down half a point from the September rate. In fact, it's the lowest inflation's been since January. Uh, We saw falling prices for things like used cars, airline tickets, and health insurance. Some of that reflects a drop in demand. Uh, Some of it suggests supply chains are coming untangled. And some of this is the result of retailers who stockpiled too much inventory, and now they're having to offer discounts. That's why you saw a a drop in clothing prices last month, for Ah. example. Okay, so Wall Street obviously really seemed to like this report. Talk about why. This was the biggest stock market rally in two years. Uh, You can kind of understand that. Inflation is moving in the right direction. But some investors seem to be taking that as a sign that the Federal Reserve will soon stop raising interest rates, even though the Fed's been very clear that is not its intention. Uh, Economist Kathy Bastianczyk, who's with Nationwide, thinks today's big market rally was something of an overreaction. Markets are really eager to declare victory for the Fed on the inflation front. You know, I think it's premature. While inflation has come down a bit, 7.7% is still really high. It's almost four times the Fed's inflation target. And that means the central bank is probably going to have to keep raising interest rates in an effort to tamp down demand. Uh, Next month's rate hike could certainly be smaller than the supersized increases we've seen at recent Fed meetings, but that doesn't mean the Fed is close to declaring mission accomplished. I mean, what is still driving inflation? Housing accounted for about half the price increase we saw between September and October. Uh Uh, Gas prices were also up a bit last month, although still down from their peak uh, early in the summer. And, you know, food prices are still climbing at a rapid rate. Grocery prices in October were up 12.4% from a year ago. Mary Daly, who heads the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, says that's a particular strain right now, you know, two weeks before one of the biggest eating holidays of the year. If you're in the grocery store right now, you see it in in any grocery store you go to, people making trade-offs. How many people can they invite? What are they going to serve? Are they going to trade down? Are we having a different kind of meal? Are we not having as many options? Because it's just very expensive. This could be the year some families decide to eat out on Thanksgiving. Uh, Restaurant prices have risen more slowly than supermarket prices over the last year. Uh, Wells Fargo says inflation is hitting a lot of the traditional Thanksgiving favorites, like 
turkey and potatoes and cranberries. Wait, wait, what's behind those price increases specifically? Turkey flocks, like all poultry, were hard hit this year by the avian flu. That's also why we continue to see big jumps in the price of eggs. Uh, There have also been some adverse weather conditions. Hot, dry weather in the Pacific uh, hurt the potato crop. And farmers throughout the country, like Brent Leggett, have seen their own production costs go up. $5 diesel fuel and a $1,000 ton fertilizer hits home pretty fast. Leggett raises sweet potatoes in Nashville, North Carolina. Sweet potatoes are actually pretty abundant this year, so that's one item on the holiday menu where you might find some bargains. We have a, a very good crop. I always say sweet potatoes are good to you and good for you, which makes them you know, a, a very good value. My family always has sweet potatoes at Thanksgiving, cooked with a little brown sugar and bourbon. Uh, Leggett, who heads the North Carolina Sweet Potato Commission, is trying to get people to eat more of them year-round. And when grocery prices are high, inexpensive, long-lasting root vegetables are something we can all be thankful for. Absolutely. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you so much, Scott. You're welcome. Going into this midterm election, some Democratic analysts were worried that Latino voters were moving towards the Republican Party. Latino voters are politically varied, but historically they have largely supported Democrats. That support has been on the decline. Last month, a Washington Post-Ipsos poll found that among voters who identify as Hispanic, support for Democrats was down 13 points from 2018. That had some strategists concerned that Republicans were making inroads with the fastest growing portion of the U.S. electorate. Here to tell us about where Latino voters landed in this year's midterms is Democratic strategist Chuck Rocha. He joined us last month to explain the challenges his party faced courting Latino voters this election season. Hello, Chuck. Hey, Alyssa. Welcome back to All Things Considered. I'm wondering, of course, some ballots are still getting counted as we speak. But can you tell us what we know so far about how Latinos voted Well, the one thing I can tell you immediately is that this trope about Latinos all running to the Republican Party is just false. And the headline on every paper on Wednesday morning should have said, Latino voters save the Democratic Party, especially in the U.S. Senate where you saw Latinos who played a huge part in Arizona and Nevada, which is not called yet, but really going in our direction. Pennsylvania, which is surprising to lots of folks. There are over 300,000 Puerto Ricans who've moved to the eastern part of that state, and they voted at over 70% for John Fetterman. The Democrats will probably be in control of our U.S. Senate, and it will be because of the Latino vote. What about in Colorado? Colorado is what I've been saying, Alyssa, is the opposite of Florida, mainly because of the growth of the Latino population now is a very safe Democratic seat. The Senate race did so well there that it's catapulting two congressional races that was on nobody's radar. One is uh, the Bobert seat. And then the new CD that is a 50-50 seat, there's going to be a Latina doctor. Her name is uh, Yadira Cavero is going to be elected there. So it's a huge night for Latinos in Colorado. Can you help us understand some of these regional differences, why things will be different in Florida versus Colorado? On average, the party who had won the White House loses 30, 40 seats. And Republicans and a lot of the press had us believing that. But that was just not the case outside of Florida. And the reason Florida's different is the nuance that you speak about. There's just so many more Republican Cubans, Republican Colombians, and other Republican Latino voters in that state, A, 
And then B, the National Democrats made a strategic decision early on in the campaign cycle not to invest in Florida and to take those resources and double down in Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia. And so the Republicans kind of had a one-sided contest and took advantage of having a playing field that wasn't very level. Yesterday, we heard that young voters in the U.S. played a big role in stopping the predicted red wave. Did that hold true for Latino voters? The average age of a Latino voter is 27. Mm -hmm. The youth vote is the Latino vote. So when you see people talk about a spike in the youth vote, it correlates with a spike with the Latino vote. So I knew when I started seeing folks standing in line at college campuses that it was going to be a good night for us and our vote. So Dems did well, but where did they miss the mark in terms of connecting with and uh, earning the Latino vote? I think that making sure that you have folks on your campaign that are from the community. Many times the big national parties will come in, they'll tell you you have to hire their consultants from Washington, D.C. or New York. That's where Democrats normally lose their way. Hmm. Democrats need to make sure that they're hiring local operatives or at least Latino-owned firms who understand where you show up with some cultural competency because cultural competency is the real key as you see our demographic grow into being such a big determining factor in all these races. Democratic strategist Chuck Rocha, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Brazilian vocalist Gal Costa died this week. Her official social media announced the news without citing the cause. As NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports, the 77-year-old was considered one of Brazil's great singers. Gal Costa was born in Salvador de Bahia in 1945 and forever sang about her beloved country. Costa grew up revering another Brazilian singer, guitarist, and composer, João Gilberto, who pioneered bossa nova. She once told Argentina's Canal Encuentro that her world was rocked the first time she heard Gilberto sing. She started singing as a teen and by 1969 released her first solo album. By then, the mezzo-soprano and her friends Roberto Gil and Caetano Veloso had become key figures of Tropicalia, Brazil's counterculture arts movement of the 1960s. Their revolutionary style, melting traditional rock and avant-garde, was considered subversive by the country's military dictatorship. Gil and Veloso were exiled, but Costa continued to perform their songs as well as her own. Last year, Costa talked about her career with the Brazilian talk show Conversa com Bial. I used to say my work was political more for the aesthetics than for words and political discourse, she said. But she also took a stand against Brazil's outgoing president, Jair Bolsonaro. After her death was announced, Brazil's newly elected president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, mourned Costa, tweeting photos of them hugging. Online, Gilberto Gil referred to her as his little sister. Vai com ela, a voz maviosa, o encanto do canto extraordinário. Gil says her gentle voice, the charm of her extraordinary singing goes with her, and with us remains the longing, the sadness. 
Saudade is a Portuguese word for that sensation, something Brazilian music lovers are feeling with the passing of Gal Costa. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Biden administration is asking Ukraine to show a willingness to negotiate with Russia. That story still ahead on All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. Stocks were on a rocket ship today. The Dow rose about 1,200 points, three and three quarters percent, to finally settle at 33,715. S&P pulled in even more. It rose more than five and a half percent to close at 39.56. The Nasdaq jumped seven and a third percent to close at 11. 1,114. The number of people filing new unemployment claims in the state rose by almost 700 last week. Nearly 5,400 people sought benefits. That's a jump of nearly 15 percent from the week before. This fall, a series of tech companies have announced job cuts in the state, including Twitter, Starry, and Cyber Reason. Consumer prices rose a bit more than expected, up 7.7 percent through October. We're following the economy and all the day's news at WBUR and check back in for more analysis, including Marketplace tonight at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tapas 529 and Melrose for sharing and sampling Spanish and Mediterranean taste sensations. Reserving now for private holiday parties, tapas529.com. <laughs> This month, WBR's Last Seen podcast returns for a third season with new mysteries about people, places, and things that have gone missing. Follow Last Seen wherever you listen to your podcasts. In the forecast, a breezy this evening. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy, down around 52 for a low. Tomorrow, partly sunny. Milder could reach 70 degrees. 64 degrees now in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Alyssa Nadworny. Russia says it's withdrawing troops from the key southern Ukrainian city of Kherson, which would be yet another big military setback. Yet Ukraine says it isn't seeing a full-scale Russian pullout and is questioning whether this may be some sort of trap. The Biden administration is asking Ukraine to show a willingness to negotiate with Russia. To break this all down, we're joined by NPR's Tom Bowman in Washington and Greg Myrie in Kyiv. Welcome both. Good to be with you. Hi, Alyssa. So, Greg, what is the latest in the city of Kherson? Well, the Russian Defense Ministry says the withdrawal is going as planned, and this follows an announcement by Russian military leaders Wednesday that they were pulling out. Now, none of this could happen without President Vladimir Putin's approval. He's giving up uh, one of Russia's few successes in the war without a fight, and it just highlights Russia's military weakness at this point. Now, here in Kyiv, Ukrainians are still skeptical that Russia is really undertaking a complete withdrawal. 
Ukrainian troops are moving into villages outside Kherson, where the Russians have left, but the situation inside the city itself is still not clear. President Volodymyr Zelensky is urging caution. In a TV address, he says, quote, our emotions must be restrained. The enemy does not bring us gifts. It does not make gestures of goodwill. Okay, Tom, so square this for me, because it sounds like the Russians are faltering on the battlefield, and yet the Biden administration is raising the possibility of peace negotiations. That's right. What's interesting is the Biden administration recently had discussions with Ukrainian leaders asking them to ease up on its harsh rhetoric and make sure that Ukraine is at least open to talks. Now, officials say the U.S. is not forcing Ukraine into talks or even dictating any sort of parameters for talks, only that they want to just peace. And this was privately. But here's the thing. Just over the past 24 hours, we've seen a public nudge toward Mm. diplomacy. Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley told a group in New York that neither the Russians nor the Ukrainians can achieve a military victory. And each country, get this, has more than 100,000 soldiers killed and wounded. And he compared it to 1914, the first year of World War I, where hundreds of thousands were killed. And there was this chance for diplomacy that was not taken. And the war dragged on another four years with millions more dead. Here's General Milley. When there's an opportunity to negotiate, when peace can be achieved, seize it. Also, President Biden just yesterday said that both sides might recalibrate their positions in light of the Russian retreat from Kherson. So a subtle push for diplomacy, but it appears neither side is really ready. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Greg, it feels like there's kind of these two parallel narratives then. So on the ground, it's like we're seeing headway on the Ukrainian side, then this message from Biden. What's the Ukraine response? There's certainly not any enthusiasm for negotiations that we're sensing here in Kiev. President Zelensky is repeating the conditions for negotiations. You can hear him here. He's speaking in Ukrainian, but you can hear just how adamant he is. He's saying all Russian forces must leave Ukraine. Russia must pay damages caused by war. It must punish war criminals. And there must be guarantees that no Russian invasion will occur again. The Russian foreign ministry has come out and said we're ready for negotiations, but they haven't provided any details. And there's no indication that Russia would meet any of these positions set by Ukraine. So Ukraine has long said that Russians have to be out of Ukraine in order to start this negotiation. Is that realistic, Tom? You know, it's really not. Uh, Now, Ukraine has done quite well in pushing back the Russian forces. It surprised everyone, of course, with the help of U.S. and NATO military assistance, taking more and more territory. But U.S. officials, again, question whether Ukraine can achieve what President Zelensky wants, taking back all the territory held by Russia, including Crimea, as we heard from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Now, in the south, as Greg mentioned, Russian forces have started to leave Kherson the only regional capital grabbed by Russia earlier this year. That's significant, at least politically and maybe militarily, because that could keep the Russians on the far side of the river, preventing Russian forces from heading back across into Kherson and possibly, get this, allow some Ukrainian troops to be diverted to that fight in the east to push that fight as well. Hmm. Greg, as you've said, Ukraine might not be interested in negotiating, but we've got some folks that have a little bit of power here, the U.S. and Europe. If they start to scale back their support, what happens? 
Well, that could happen. There's talk about it. We're not seeing anything definite yet, Mm -hmm. but that would potentially be a big blow. The U.S. has given Ukraine about $19 billion this year in military aid alone. There's also lots of humanitarian aid, which is badly needed in the winter. Uh, Much of the country is now facing daily power cuts, including right here in the capital, Uh, and this could get worse in the coming months. Now, all that said, Ukraine has fought Russia since 2014, and Western military aid didn't arrive in large quantities until this year. So Ukraine did figure out ways to keep Russia at bay, even when it was fighting largely with its own resources. And if I could quickly add, the U.S. and its NATO partners will hold another meeting for more military aid next week. And what they really need is air defenses to prevent the power supply from getting hit by Russian missiles. So we'll see what happens with that additional aid. Hmm. That is NPR's Tom Bowman in Washington and Greg Myrie in Kiev. Thank you both. You're welcome. My pleasure. Anyone who was glued to the World Series will know how important throwing things is to human life. What's the game without a pitch, right? But only a handful of animals are known to chuck objects, like elephants, polar bears, and a few primates. Well, scientists recently added octopuses to that list. An octopus seemed to sort of drop a bunch of shells on another octopus. And we spent a long while watching that tape, trying to work out if it was deliberate or if it was just accidental. Peter Godfrey-Smith of the University of Sydney says they needed more evidence. So he and his colleagues set up GoPro cameras underwater at a site off Australia's coast, teeming with the so-called gloomy octopus. It's a scallop bed. It's, it's like a sort of endless seafood buffet for them. It's also unusual because Godfrey Smith says many octopuses tend to be loners, whereas the ones there interact quite a bit. Sort of very low-key wrestling, arm pokes and things like that. And in the videos they captured, you can see magnificently camouflaged octopuses slowly rise up out of a bed of scallop shells and then fling debris through the water. They captured more than 100 instances. And we began to see these more dramatic cases where an octopus will gather a bunch of stuff in its arms, sometimes move a little bit forward, and then sort of blast out the material, releasing it from the arms and applying pressure from the the jet propulsion device that they have. So technically more of a blast than a throw, but... After studying the behavior in more detail, they say the octopuses did appear to aim at others, and those in the line of fire sometimes ducked or raised their arms. The results are in the journal Plus One. Godfrey Smith points out that this doesn't mean the creatures are warlike. We shouldn't map it too straightforwardly onto the area of human conflict, human relationships. Octopuses are just doing their own weird thing. It's different from what we do. Although the octopuses did throw things at the scientists' cameras a few times. So, you know, like some humans, perhaps the octopuses weren't too fond of the paparazzi. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR Twitter. Blue check chaos coming up on WBUR. Boston Bruins are looking to keep their perfect record at the Garden intact as they host the Calgary Flames tonight. The puck drops at 7 o'clock. Looks like Charlie McAvoy will be back on the ice for the first time this season after he had shoulder surgery this summer. In the forecast, some clouds around tonight. Not too chilly, about 52 degrees. For tomorrow, Veterans Day, some sunshine early. Clouds later on. Chance of showers, too, warming to about 70 degrees 
This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. Hospitals are being overwhelmed by children sick with RSV. The surge of patients, the influx of patients, patients waiting to get beds, the demand on the system, it feels very much like 2020. What is respiratory syncytial virus, and why is this usually mild illness surging now? How can it be contained? We'll talk about it on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Now news. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Georgia's U.S. Senate race is now officially in overtime as campaigning gets underway for a runoff election next month between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and the Republican nominee football legend Herschel Walker. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Sam Greenglass reports. Neither candidate topped 50% of the vote on Tuesday, so they'll now spend the next four weeks trying to convince voters to return to the polls. Warnock kicked off this next phase in front of a mural of the late Congressman John Lewis. Georgians understand the importance of competence and character. Fundamentally, this is a race about right and wrong. Meanwhile, Walker is rallying tonight with Texas Senator Ted Cruz. An early ad suggests his campaign will keep framing the race as a check on President Biden. With Senate races in Nevada and Arizona still too close to call, control of the Senate could hinge on Georgia. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. The latest government report shows inflation moderated slightly more than Wall Street expected last month, as NPR's David Gura reports. Wall Street economists had expected an increase of 7.9 percent. Core inflation, which does not include food and energy prices, was also lower than forecasted at 6.3 percent. In October, oil prices went up and so did the price of gasoline. Meat and eggs were more expensive along with baked goods. Rent continued to be a huge driver of high inflation. It saw the largest monthly increase in more than three decades. But used car prices have started to moderate. So is the price of clothing. The Federal Reserve is trying to bring high inflation under control. Earlier this month, it once again raised interest rates by three-quarters of a percentage point. Wall Street expects another hike of half a percentage point at the Fed's next meeting. David Gura, NPR News, New York. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Cases of a respiratory virus are surging across Massachusetts, and pediatric hospitals are struggling to keep up. The virus is called RSV, and it can be serious for babies, children with heart or lung conditions. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports. Doctors at Mass General Brigham say they saw 1,000 patients with RSV last week alone across their network. Some children need to be admitted to the hospital for oxygen and fluids, but most kids get better at home. Dr. Alexi Arouse Boudreaux is a pediatrician at Mass General Hospital. What is important is that we monitor them. We see how they're breathing, how they're playing, and if we start to get concerns that they're tired at rest, working harder to breathe, or not drinking enough fluids, that's when you call your pediatric office. Mass General Hospital was full today with several young patients waiting for a bed. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dale McCluskey. 
diesel prices continue to increase in Massachusetts. The average price is now $5.92 a gallon. That's up 15 cents from a week ago and $2.35 higher from this time last year. A recent survey by the American Transportation Research Institute shows diesel prices are the top concern for the trucking industry, followed by a shortage of drivers. Cambridge-based drug maker Biogen is tapping Christopher Wiebacher to be its next CEO. He was the top executive at the pharmaceutical giant Sanofi. He was let go in 2014. Wiebacher takes over at Biogen for Michel Venatsos. In May, he announced plans to leave the company after its Alzheimer's drug generated poor sales and questions from doctors and insurers over its price and its effectiveness. This week marked Hatch Day for one of the oldest African penguins at the New England Aquarium. On Tuesday, Harlequin the penguin turned 30 years old. That's around triple the lifespan in the wild. She celebrated with a delicious treat of ice with frozen fish in it. Aquarium penguin trainer Brian uh, Brendan Dugan says the African penguin population in the wild is in decline. Over the past 100 years, the population of African penguins has declined about 97% from over a million breeding pairs down to only 10,400 in the last estimate last summer. Dugan says the decline is due in part to encroachment by humans on the penguin breeding grounds and disruption of their food source of fish because of climate change. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Give the gift of a Thanksgiving meal. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR. A mild day, relatively mild night follows. Should only fall to the low 50s tonight. Tomorrow, Veterans Day, could have the brightest skies in the morning. Then later on, some rain and clouds pushing about 70 degrees. It is right now 63 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2022 Subaru Forester Wilderness with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Alyssa Nadworny. Something we heard over and over leading up to the midterm elections was that democracy was on the ballot. So we want to take a few minutes now to focus on how Americans voted when it comes to the positions that oversee the voting process. We're talking about Secretary of State races across the nation. For an update on that, we are joined now by NPR's Miles Parks, who covers voting. Hey, Miles. Hi, Alyssa. So let's start with the big picture. We heard a lot about election deniers running this cycle. How did they do? So there's kind of two ways you can look at it. On one hand, it's a bit worrying. We did see election deniers win in traditional Republican strongholds, places like Alabama, Wyoming, Indiana. Election deniers will be secretary of state going forward. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, when you look at competitive states, voters seem to have been pretty clear in defeating these candidates. They lost decisively in Minnesota, in New Mexico, in Michigan. We're still watching to see what happens in Arizona and Nevada as they continue to count votes there. But Mm -hmm. Democrats seem optimistic there as well. 
Michigan was on your races to watch list heading into Tuesday. Tell us about that race. Yeah, in a lot of ways, the incumbent Secretary of State there, Democrat Jocelyn Benson, has kind of embodied the role of the election worker in the U.S. over the last couple of years. She was one of the loudest defenders of the voting system in 2020. And because of that, former President Trump really targeted her. And she saw a lot of death threats. She saw armed protesters after that election actually come to her house. She was running this cycle for re-election against a far right candidate, Christina Caramo, who rose to prominence by pushing a lot of these election fraud claims in Detroit. And Benson won by about 14 points in a very competitive state, Mm. which she told me today she hopes is a warning sign to candidates going forward who want to push misinformation around elections. Those folks were by and large roundly rejected. And and because of that, I think and I hope with that accountability at the ballot box, voters have said, we don't want you to lie to us. It is worth noting that her opponent, Karamo, has yet to concede in this race and actually posted a statement today alleging some sort of um, issues with the voting process. Hmm. What about the two races in Arizona and Nevada that haven't been called yet? What can you tell us about those? So in both races, Democrats are facing pretty extreme election denying candidates on the right, candidates who say the entire elections process is rigged. They want to take away early voting. They want to change how votes are counted, things like that. In these states at this point, the races do seem to be closer than they were in Michigan as ballots are still being counted. And these are going to be races we are also going to be watching really closely for how these candidates behave in the time after the election. For instance, Mark Fincham, the Republican candidate in Arizona, has already alluded to some sort of conspiracy involving his opponent, Democrat Adrian Fontes. I actually talked to Fontes before the election about just this possibility. It's going to be a normal process. The only thing that might be unusual is that you're going to get a couple of blowhards screaming for attention. Uh, and, and what they scream for attention for is irrelevant in my mind. You know, just even even paying attention to the shenanigans and the, the nonsense is giving them too much credit. So Fontes says don't pay attention to these, but, to these people, but we're kind of have to when it comes to a concession because we know how important a concession is when it comes to just taking down the temperature in the time as votes are counted and then the elections are certified. It does feel like the temperature is a bit lower this election, right? It does. It's good news. Election officials are cautiously optimistic as I talk to them. They are kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, mm-hmm. though. That's what one ele- election official put it to me. The election certification process is going to happen in the next couple weeks, so they're still on guard. Right. NPR's Miles Parks. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Who is real and who is fake on Twitter? That is now an urgent question as the new owner of Twitter, Elon Musk, makes the first major change to the social network. He's letting anyone pay for a verified blue checkmark. And since then, chaos has ensued from fake George W. Bush and Tony Blair accounts trading insensitive jokes about the Iraq war to a quote unquote verified account for Jesus Christ. Trolls have been having a field day on the platform, and here to tell us more about it is NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Elsa. All right, so what exactly has Musk done with these blue check marks? He basically put them up for sale. Now, before Musk, Twitter handed out blue checks to government officials, athletes, celebrities, journalists, and others as a way of saying this is this person or organization is official. And, you know, as a result, what people said from these accounts was taken dead seriously. It could affect people's safety during emergencies. It could influence policy. It would move markets. 
Now, though, we're in a whole new world because the blue check is shrouded in doubt. And that's, you know, in part because, you know, Musk is offering for $8 a month uh, this service called Twitter Blue, which allows you to pay for the status symbol. Musk has tweeted that the old way created, quote, lords and peasant system. The problem, however, is we've seen, as you mentioned, all sorts of fake accounts. LeBron James account that was fake, uh, you know, falsely saying you wanted to be traded. There was a phony <laughs> Nintendo account with, the, you know, the Mario character giving the middle finger. A Trump impersonator was floating around Twitter. There was a fake Eli Lilly account that falsely said insulin is now free. So, wow. yeah, I mean, Twitter has been nothing short of total chaos the past 24 hours. Wait, so what is Musk saying in response to the flood of impersonators? Like, is he going to make any changes? He is. He's instructed employees at Twitter that cracking down on impersonators is the number one priority. And uh, Twitter is suspending some of these phony accounts pretty quickly. But the problem is getting out of hand. I mean, so much so that uh, Twitter announced that Twitter blue accounts, so, you know, buying these blue checks, are mm-hmm. it's no longer available for brand new accounts. The company uh-huh. is kind of pausing that right now until it sorts out this mess. Okay, so... In the meantime, like what are researchers who study social media saying about the blue check mark changes? Yeah, they're really on edge, Elsa. I talked to Rachel Toback. She runs the firm Proof Security, which is focused on preventing the, you know, preventing the abuse of social media sites like Twitter. And, um, you know, she said we haven't seen any election officials uh, accounts, you know, impersonated yet. But Toback says we're only in the, the early days of these changes. Right now, we have people making jokes, impersonating the president, impersonating Nintendo, and Elon Musk is laughing at those jokes because he thinks they're funny right now. What's not going to be funny is someone impersonating an election official and meddling and causing interference within the election results. Yeah, Toback also mentioned that, you know, what if during a hurricane or a flood or some other kind of catastrophe, you know, say a fake emergency services account with a blue check gave people harmful advice about where to seek shelter? I mean, that could be a total catastrophe. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, are people thinking like all of this is just some growing pain under Musk or is this the new Twitter? Yeah, I think that's the big question right now. I mean, one thing is for sure, more and more of Musk's deputies are ditching him. I mean, just today we learned that Twitter's head of trust and safety is reportedly leaving the company. And that came after news spread that Twitter's chief privacy officer and the top compliance officer resigned over fears that Musk is going to blow off a court order concerning user privacy. So lots of drama inside of the company right now. On the platform itself, you know, Musk has really taken the move fast and break things ethos of Silicon Valley to heart. A few times already, you know, we've seen these changes announced on Twitter (laughs) and they're you know, then undone just minutes later. So right. um, it's kind of a crazy time right now. Worth pointing yeah. out that, you know, these seismic changes are happening at a time when Twitter has half the staff that it had before Musk took over. So if there's one piece of advice I leave you with, Elsa, it's be careful what you retweet. Got you. That is NPR's Bobby Allen. Thank you, Bobby. Thanks, Elsa. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. For most U.S. voters, elections boil down to a choice between two parties, Democrats and Republicans. But political options, but political opinions don't always fall into two camps. That's a lesson a group of 11th graders in Wisconsin spent their election day learning. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo visited their classroom. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. 
Luke Pawani teaches government at Kowaskam High School, about an hour outside of Milwaukee. Tuesday was a big day for his juniors. They voted in a mock election that mirrored the real election happening nationwide. Hand you a ballot as you walked in, please. First task is vote on that and then bring it up into the ballot box here. The 11th graders had been researching the big issues on the ballot for weeks. I want them to learn about these issues so that they can figure out what issues matter to them and, you know, make their own decisions that way. Kowaskam is in Wisconsin's 5th district. It's historically conservative. But on election day, Mr. Pawani didn't want to focus on Republicans versus Democrats. He wanted students to make up their own minds about where they stood. So while the mock election ballots were counted, he asked his students to create their own political parties based on their own beliefs. And the results looked pretty different from the platforms we're used to seeing. First up is the Chameleon Party. We chose to represent the Chameleon because Chameleons can change into purple. And that's what we hope for all states. They support action on climate change and stricter gun laws. And they also support the death penalty and increased military spending. Next up, the Hardy Party. We do not support open borders, but we will allow immigrants to come in. But they have to go through the process. They can't just walk in. The Hardy Party also campaigned on being pro-choice and pro-guns. In fact, abortion and guns played a role in almost every platform. So did climate change. But all six parties had a mix of ideologies. Despite that, the tally from the mock election was pretty partisan, along with some surprising write-ins. All right, first up, for governor, Evers, two, Michaels, 17, and Elmo received a vote. Tony Evers, the Democratic incumbent, didn't fare too well against his Republican challenger, Tim Michaels. He only barely outperformed Elmo. Republican Senator Ron Johnson won re-election 15 to 3, with one write-in for Harry Potter. Every Republican candidate on the mock ballots won in a landslide. Wisconsin's real election was more mixed. The Senate race went Republican by a slim margin, and the Democratic governor won re-election handily. For Mr. Pawani, comparing the mock election to the real election is sometimes the most important lesson. Just really that reflection piece, I think, is important for them to, to really kind of get a gauge and, and see if their um, understanding of, of politics in our system is, is in line with what actually is occurring. And that's a big part of teaching his students to be engaged citizens. Some of the issues might change for them, but they're hopefully going to be invested and involved because that's, that's the ultimate goal, is to make sure we have productive, active citizens. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News, Kowaskam, Wisconsin. All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Election Day is passed, but the counting continues, and we're still making sense of what happened, so far anyway. NPR and WBUR are following the remaining races and key issues, so keep listening to 90.9 WBUR for updates and a look at what comes next. The forecast is just ahead.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit tackling the world's biggest sustainability challenges like the climate and water crises. Learn more at ceres.org slash WBUR. Bruins face off against Calgary tonight at the Garden, 7 p.m. start time. Relatively mild night coming up tonight should only fall to the low 50s. Then for tomorrow, Veterans Day could have the brightest skies in the morning. Some clouds and rain later on should push 70 degrees. For the weekend, starting off gray and rainy on Saturday before the sunshine breaks through. Could make it to the low 70s Saturday. And then Sunday, sunny and cooler again in the mid-50s. WBUR supporters include the Boston Antiquarian Book Fair, rare books, maps, and prints at the Heinz tomorrow through Sunday. Appraisals open to the public on Sunday. BostonBookFair.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow. I'm about to die in this patch of mud in a town nobody's heard of, in a war that probably shouldn't have been fought. What the hell am I doing here? I had that thought for about 10 seconds, and then I came back to why I'm here, which is I didn't want someone to go fight in my place. A special Veterans Day conversation on Radio Boston, tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. And I'm Elsa Chang. When I walked into our studios in Culver City, California, to finally meet Swamp Pop legend Tommy McLean, I was so pleased to see him decked out in velour pants and bright white cowboy boots. His long Santa Claus beard flowing down his chest. Oh, oh this is your show costume now. That's it. You roll out of bed and get ready to go. Mac Lane was one of the inventors of Swamp Pop. It's a melange of R&B, country western, gospel, and traditional French Louisiana music. This morning on my front porch swing, I heard red birds sing. Mac Lane is 82 years old, and he's out with a new album with his producer and guitarist, Cece Adcock. But, you know, there was a point not that long ago when Mac Lane didn't think anybody was going to hear it. Some old boy come through the neighborhood and just had to pick my house and burn it down. But I wasn't in there. Then we had a pandemic. We couldn't even play or anything. And then we had hurricanes, and I had a triple bypass heart attack. But he kept pushing forward. The bad man was after me, but I've overcome so far. I didn't give up. And sure enough, I Ran Down Every Dream became Tommy McLean's first album in four decades. I'm tired of living on the losing end. I'm stepping out into the wind. I got a little money jingle jingling. McLean first hit it big back in 1966 with a recording of the country ballad Sweet Dreams. Sweet, sweet dreams of you. This catapulted him to a new level of fame. 1966, I was on top of the world. I ran through that money and my life like it was ice cream. I was here at the Gene Autry's Hotel, Continental Sunset Strip, Dr. Martin Luther King. I met him and flew on the plane with him and Coretta. That's a great thing that happened in my life. But McLean says that kind of success and hard living eventually caught up with him. At age 50, 
he turned to the Catholic Church. So I had to go to confession one day. I said, uh, Father Duga, I said, uh, I can't play secular music no more, rock and roll. I said, everybody's calling me, getting mad at me. And priest looked at me and said, Tommy, you go in them honky-tonks, get the people out there to come to the Catholic Church. We can't go. See this scholar? You can go do it. <laughs> Take off. Catholic evangelist. Boom. There I am. There you are. I got, I got happiness in my life, girl. I, I really do. Well, yeah. I mean, even though you have, you know, become a preacher, you've been performing and writing songs all the while, how does it feel to have an album come out after so long? Uh, Elsa, I'm sitting here and can't hardly believe it. It's a long time, 40 years, to have an international album like we got going. But I'll tell you what, let us play uh, I Ran Down Every Dream off of our album, CCA Cock on Guitar and me, and I'm going to try to gargle through this with my old voice. <laughs> Can't I wait. ran down every dream. Two, three, four. I remember a long time ago Records Sent me reeling Falling in And out of love Music It kept Interfering And when we were young We'd set this world on fire Change everyone's opinion This world's made me the liar From a hero to the villain But I ran down every dream I swear I had the best intention This is such a treat. This album, it also has this star-studded guest list like Nick Lowe, Van Dyke Parks. You co-wrote the title track with Elvis Costello. Can I just ask, how did that collaboration with Elvis Costello come about? I didn't know Elvis Costello that good. We played in New Orleans for a memorial. Then he and I just got to talking. Two old Catholic boys. I'll walk back to the house I love. Found only rubble. That song Gunn wrote me a tune called Hidden Heart, Elvis Costello. I mean, he didn't have to do that. He just wanted to help old Tommy McLean. We've all become a family now. My hidden heart 
I'm living another life, and I ain't lying about that. And that's what I want to ask you about, because you've said a number of times already, you feel like you're living a new life. Do you think all those challenges that happened to you the last few years, all that anguish, do you think it helped shape the sound of this album? Yeah, oh, yeah. I didn't think I'd ever get up out of that bed and sing. I lost all my extremities. You couldn't, you know, don't think that's going to kill you because you have a heart attack. And you're going to, it's a learning situation if you live. You learn. You better keep that on your mind. I've got to hurry up before I go to all and I'm Take a trip. I heard when you were recuperating from surgery, you were writing in your hospital bed, yeah. writing oh, music. Yeah. yeah, I have to do that. I gotta have music around me. That's all I know. That's my gift, you know? And so I talk to everybody about music, and they talk about whatever they do, and I don't understand the word they say it, because music's <laughs> all I can do, Elsa. <laughs> I love it. It is your gift. Tommy McLean. He released his first album in 40 years earlier this year. It's called I Ran Down Every Dream. Thank you so much, Tommy, for coming in person God here. God bless you, Elsa. This has been this such joy. This wonderful show. I can't believe I'm sitting here. Brand new life. You know, we're on top of the world. And you got the smile. If I had your smile, I'd be a trillionaire. That's what I love you, Tommy. You're wonderful, Elsa. Thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Kind of breezy out there now. Should stay that way through the nighttime. Partly cloudy skies overnight, about 52 for a low. Tomorrow, partly sunny and milder. Could reach 70. Things may turn overcast during the afternoon, some showers possible. The weekend is looking mixed, heavy rain early Saturday, then sunshine later. Should be about 72 degrees, Sunday turning sunny and colder in the mid-50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhill Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. I'm Radio Boston executive producer Titus Faladun. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The vote counting continues, and it's looking as if control of the U.S. Senate could hinge on the still undecided elections in Arizona and Nevada. State officials say, be patient. We ask you to please, please be patient. We need to make sure that every single vote is counted. It's Thursday, November 10th. This is All Things Considered. 
I'm Lisa Mullins. An update on the races in the two battleground states coming up. The dust is yet to settle, but we'll look at what the results mean for President Biden's policies and his decision about whether to run again in 2024. The graying of Capitol Hill, why Congress has been skewing older. And Hurricane Nicole made landfall in Florida, which is rare in November, raising more concerns about climate change. These stories and Bob Mondelli's review of Wakanda Forever, Marvel's Black Panther sequel. It's 601 News Headlines and the Way Up Wall Street numbers coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Votes are still being counted across the country, with multiple competitive races still not called. NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports Republicans are on a path to retake control of the House, but likely with a smaller majority than they had expected going into the midterm elections. For control of the House, either party needs to reach 218 seats. Republicans need to win nine more to gain control and appear to be on a path to secure a narrow majority. For the Senate, Republicans would need to pick up two of the three undecided competitive races in Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia to take control. The races in Arizona and Nevada are very tight as election officials continue to tally hundreds of thousands of ballots. It will take weeks before the Georgia Senate race is called Neither incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock or Republican challenger Herschel Walker surpassed 50 percent. So a December 6 runoff election could decide which party controls the Senate. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Washington. Stocks on Wall Street rallied today after a better-than-expected report on inflation. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average soared more than 1,200 points and the tech-heavy Nasdaq rose 760. Annual inflation cooled in October to its lowest level since January. The monthly price hikes between September and October were also smaller than forecasters had expected. Prices actually fell for some items, including used cars, furniture, and health insurance. Investors cheered the news, hoping it might allow the Federal Reserve to ease up in its campaign against inflation. Fed officials cautioned, however, they're a long way from declaring victory. At 7.7 percent, inflation is still much higher than the Fed is comfortable with. The central bank says it plans to keep raising interest rates in an effort to tamp down demand, although next month's rate hike could be smaller than the supersized increases at each of the last four Fed meetings. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Hurricane Nicole has weakened to a tropical storm but continues to slam the east coast of Florida with heavy rain and high winds. Governor Ron DeSantis says emergency response teams are ready to assist in recovery efforts. We had activated 600 National Guardsmen, have seven urban search and rescue teams on standby, are ready to respond as soon as the weather clears. We also have FWC's high water vehicles ready to assist in response efforts should that be needed. Utility crews are working to restore service to more than 250,000 customers in the central part of the state. More than 60 school districts across Florida were closed today. Orlando International Airport says limited commercial operations will resume tonight. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Public Schools will likely have the same school transportation provider for at least another five years. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, its current provider, TransDev, was the only company to bid on a new contract with the school district. 
Boston's on-time school bus performance has faced a lot of scrutiny during the district's contract with Transdev, which began in 2013. The state is currently investigating the district for its special education transportation. While changing vendors won't be an option for Boston, a district spokesperson says new requirements in the upcoming $17 million contract could help. Those include more incentives for good performance and stronger reporting requirements. The last time the school bus contract was up for bid, the district got two official proposals. The fact that Boston only got one bid this time fits a growing statewide pattern of declining competition in the school bus transportation industry. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Painting the flat black roofs of Boston's iconic triple-deckers white could be a quick, cost-effective way to mitigate hotter summers caused by climate change. That's according to a new report from Boston University. It says more widespread use of white roofs, which reflect sunlight, could reduce summer temperatures in some of the city's hottest and most vulnerable neighborhoods. WBR's Barbara Moran has more. If you take a bird's-eye view of Boston, you see a lot of triple-deckers with a lot of black roofs. Painting them white would be a cheap fix that cools houses almost instantly, says study co-author Lucy Hutira. For once, (laughs) the unique architecture of Boston makes this solution a little bit easier. And those buildings are in the same places where you have the highest temperatures and the most socially vulnerable populations. The report calls for an incentive program to subsidize roof conversions. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Republicans in Connecticut have fallen short in an effort to put a member of their party to the U.S. House for the first time in over a decade. This afternoon, the Associated Press declared incumbent Democrat Congresswoman Johanna Hayes the winner over Republican former state Senator George Logan in the state's 5th district. And a beloved figure in the New England folk music scene has died. Dick Pleasance was a longtime music host on WUMB, GBH, and he was also a promoter. He introduced local audiences to the music of everyone from Tom Rush to Nancy Griffith, Mark Arelli, and Patty Larkin. Betsy Siggins is founder of the Folk New England Archives and former director of Club 47, now known as Passim. She says Dick Pleasance cultivated the folk music audience in Boston in part by being a mensch and a mentor to musicians. He made people feel that they mattered and that their music, no matter what level it was at, was important. Dick Pleasance died Tuesday. He had lived with Parkinson's disease for some 20 years. Tonight should be partly cloudy, pretty breezy, not too chilly, falling to about 52. Tomorrow could make it to 70. Partial sunshine in the morning, then some clouds moving in during the afternoon. Chance of some rain as well. This is WBUR at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. And I'm Elsa Chang. Well, it's looking like control of the U.S. Senate is going to come down to three very close races in three states. Georgia's Senate race will go to a runoff next month. And so for now, all eyes are on Arizona and Nevada, where the results are still being counted. We've got reporters out in the southwest, NPR's Deepa Shivaram in Las Vegas, Nevada, and NPR's Jimena Bustillo in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey to both of you. Hey. 
Okay. So, Deepa, I want to start with you because I understand Clark County's election department has wrapped up their daily press conference. What are we learning at this point? Yeah, so the registrar of voters here in Clark County, which encompasses Las Vegas, his name is Joe Gloria, and he's holding these daily press conferences that have been happening every day since Election Day to brief reporters, take questions. And what we've learned is that there are still about 50,000 ballots in Clark County that need to be counted. Gloria said that he thinks a majority of those ballots will be counted by Saturday. So that's the day we're all keeping an eye on. It's not going to be a holiday weekend for these election workers, and they're going to keep working through the weekend and into next week. And there are still ballots that are going to be counted after Monday as well. So it's not just ending on Saturday. That's not exactly the end all be all. Those are going to be some of the ballots that have to be cured, which means that the signatures on them didn't match up. And that's getting checked through the end of the business day on Monday. Plus, there's about 5,000 provisional ballots that were cast in person on Election Day. Those have to get certified and gone through the Secretary of State's office here, and they'll be counted midweek next week. And of course, all of this impacts these really tight races in Nevada. The one we're all watching, of course, is the Senate race with incumbent Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. Her Republican challenger is Adam Laxalt. Mm -hmm. But we're waiting for results on the governor's race as well and a few of these competitive House races, too. Oof. Okay, so a lot unresolved still. Jimena, Maricopa County in Arizona is in a similar situation, right? Like, what are election officials telling you right now? Yeah, absolutely. So in this county, you have three ways to vote, mail-in, drop-off, um, and in-person. According to election official, state law requires all mail-in and drop-off drop ballots to be individually signature verified. And then those ballots have to go through a bipartisan processing board, which is a team of two people that check the ballot. And then it goes into tabulation and is counted. This year, the county experienced a record number of these ballots. On Election Day itself, over 290,000 voters dropped off a ballot at a polling location on Election Day, as opposed to voting in person or mailing it in the day before or any time before. That's 100,000 more than last election, which held the record until this year. So it's important to remember that each state has different laws and rules, and the day of drop-offs are specific to Arizona. The calls, the calls day after the election are also not new for this state. For example, when Cinema won in 2018, you know, a different Senate seat in the state of Arizona, that was not called by the Associated Press until about a week after Election Day. Mm -hmm. The key question is the partisan split of the votes being tabulated today in Maricopa and how close they're running together, similar as Deepa just said for Nevada. That will determine if the Associated Press will be able to call the race for the Senate and the governor, which are the tightest right now as well. Right. Okay, well, Deepa, former President Trump has weighed in here posting on his platform Truth Social saying without any evidence that Clark County has a corrupt voting system. I'm curious, how have election officials responded to Trump? Yeah, this is something we were all kind of waiting and, and watching to see not only what the former president would say, but also, you know, a lot of these election deniers. They're running in Nevada, Secretary of State Adam Laxalt here in the Senate race in Arizona as well and all over the country. Um, how they're going to weigh in here as these, this process goes on and as we go, you know, into next week, more than a week after Election Day. And election officials here in Nevada were quick to respond to Trump. They said that what Trump said on his platform, again, without any evidence, uh, is outrageous and that he's misinformed 
informed about the law and the process here in Nevada, which, by the way, by the law, it's designed to take this long. It's not out of the blue that we don't have some of these ballots counted. And Gloria, the road registrar of voters that I talked about earlier, he said there are concerns about security with, with Trump's comments, especially for these election workers. There's hundreds of them here in Clark County alone uh, when Trump says these things. Here's what he said earlier today. Unfortunate comments like the one that came out today from former President Trump uh, gets certain people very fired up and they're convinced that we are doing things that are inappropriate or against the law. And that's just not the case. All right. That is NPR's Deepa Shivaram in Las Vegas and Jimena Bustillo in Phoenix. Thanks to both of you. The 2022 midterm elections were neither a mandate for Republicans nor a rejection of President Biden. Still, the GOP is poised to take control of the House, and that means a divided government is likely coming back to Washington. NPR White House correspondent Ozma Khalid reports on what the midterms mean for Biden. The president has made it clear that regardless of the final tally in these elections, he's going to try to work across the aisle. The American people have made clear, I think, that they expect Republicans to be prepared to work with me as well. Biden suggested this could be easier to do than when he was vice president in 2010. In those midterms, the GOP captured 63 seats in the House. This time, the likely Republican victory in the House will be smaller, although which party controls the Senate is still up in the air. Biden sees these close margins as an opportunity for leverage. There's always enough people in the, on the other team, whether it's Democrat or Republican, that the opposite party can make an appeal to and maybe pick them off to get the help. But with a Congress that is so polarized, there may be little room for compromise. Maria Urbina is with the progressive organization Indivisible. Of course they should always talk about things that would tangibly improve people's lives and secure their rights, but it's really hard to see where that's real. There may be room for moments of bipartisanship, for example, on military aid to Ukraine. But experts say most of Biden's agenda will likely come to a standstill. They say even the most basic things, like funding the government or raising the debt ceiling, could become a grind. Though Fez Shakir, an advisor on the left, sees a messaging upside for Democrats in this potential stalemate. You get an easier contrast because the president can be on his front foot suggesting things that he knows that Republicans might oppose, but he's going to say this is where we stand and that's where they stand. That conversation has been difficult the past two years when Democrats control both the House and the Senate, but fought amongst themselves. Shakir says Biden also has other paths to accomplish some change. The president's going to probably lean harder into foreign policy. That's often what happens when you have split control over government. Biden leaves for a trip tonight where he'll meet China's President Xi Jinping. It's a high-stakes meeting for issues like trade and defense. Divided government also means the White House can now focus on administering all the money that Congress has already agreed to for infrastructure, climate and manufacturing. But House Republicans intend to investigate Biden on everything from the Afghanistan withdrawal to the business dealings of his son, Hunter Biden. And although investigations might put the White House on the defensive, they could ultimately backfire on Republicans. Brendan Buck is a former top aide to GOP House Speakers Paul Ryan and John Boehner. He says there are dangers in overreaching. When a Congress gets kicked out, it's because people just didn't like what the other party was doing. It's not necessarily a validation of the new party. If Republicans find themselves thinking that it was all about them, they're at risk of seeing some backlash themselves. And that's what we saw in 2010 into 2012. 
That was a lesson learned when Republicans convincingly won the House in 2010, only to see Barack Obama win the presidency again two years later. Yesterday, Biden said it is his intention to run for re-election. Polls show many Democrats are half-hearted about a second Biden run. Bill Galston, a former advisor to President Bill Clinton, says the midterm results could quell some debate. This is going to diminish whatever pressure they might have been from within the Democratic Party for President Biden to stand down in favor of a fresh face. But the president's approval ratings remain underwater. Biden says he hopes to make a firm decision on another run by early next year. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Florida today is cleaning up after yet another hurricane. Hurricane Nicole hit the state near Vero Beach early this morning with 75-mile-per-hour winds. After coming ashore, it was downgraded to a tropical storm. NPR's Greg Allen reports that since records have been kept, this is the latest in the season a hurricane has ever made landfall on Florida's Atlantic coast. Nicole hit as a Category 1 storm. As hurricanes go, that's on the low end of the scale. Authorities ordered evacuations for people living on barrier islands along much of Florida's Atlantic coast because of the threat of storm surge. As Nicole passed through Florida today, local authorities and Governor Ron DeSantis agreed it could have been a lot worse. You do have downed trees, you have power lines, you have some road washouts. Combined winds and storm surge, we've seen beach erosion, especially in areas that had already seen erosion from Hurricane Ian. From Fort Lauderdale to Daytona Beach, the heavy surf and storm surge damaged piers, washed away dunes, and threatened homes and other structures. In Volusia County, authorities evacuated 19 condominium buildings and hotels, also 40 single-family homes. As the beach washed away, at least one home collapsed and others were in danger of doing so. Volusia County Manager George Rechtenwald said residents won't be able to return until the structures are inspected and declared safe. The structural damage along our coastline is unprecedented. We've never experienced anything like this before. Until Nicole developed in the Atlantic this week, many in Florida thought hurricane season was over. The season doesn't officially end until November 30th, but Florida rarely sees landfalling hurricanes this late in the year, especially on its Atlantic coast. The last one was in 1935. Jeff Masters, a meteorologist with Yale Climate Connections, says there are a few reasons Nicole formed so late. The East Coast had a very warm fall, and high-level winds in the Atlantic, which can limit hurricane formation, weren't as strong as usual. And we're in a period of global warming where the ocean temperatures are warmer than they've ever been. About 1.2 degrees centigrade warmer climate than back in the 1800s. With warmer ocean temperatures, Master says we've been seeing hurricanes form earlier than past years. And as Nicole has shown, we're likely to see them forming later in the season. Greg Allen, NPR News, Port St. Lucie, Florida. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBR's All Things Considered, the age in Congress and Bob Mondello reviews Wakanda Forever. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts. Catering diplomatic receptions, corporate celebrations, milestone events, and public galas in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Artisanal cuisine and a focus on logistics. Uncommonfeasts.com. Gather around. Let's feast. Stocks rocketed today. The Dow rose about 1,200 points. That's three and three quarters percent. 
It finally settled at 33,715. S&P pulled in even more. It rose more than 5.5% to close at 39.56. The Nasdaq jumped 7.3% to end the day at 11,114. All the details coming up in about 10 minutes on Marketplace. Retailers in the state expect a good holiday shopping season despite inflation and concerns of an oncoming recession. The Retailers Association of Massachusetts today is predicting a 10% increase in local holiday sales this year compared to last. That would outpace the rate of inflation. The association says consumer spending in the state has been relatively strong year to date. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. Just as masks are coming down, hospitals are being overwhelmed by children sick with RSV. Coming up at 7 o'clock on On Point, the latest science on RSV and how you can keep your family healthy. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, breezy, about 52 for a low. Then for tomorrow, partly sunny in the morning, clouds, maybe rain later, with highs just about 70. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Alyssa Nadworny. At the end of his eighth term representing Iowa in the U.S. Senate, the newly re-elected Chuck Grassley will be 95 years old. The Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, is 82. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is 80. In fact, nearly 25% of Congress is over 70 years old. That's the highest it's ever been. For more on this, let's bring in Walt Hickey. He is the senior data editor at Insider and led the data analysis on a project called Red, White, and Gray, about the oldest legislature in American history. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much for having me. So your project at Insider dove into a lot of numbers and found that this trend really started about 30 years ago. What happened back then? Like, what changed? You know, it's no surprise that the government is slightly older than the people that it governs. This has mm. always kind of been the case. Uh, but what we've really seen is just kind of a major shift since the 90s that has been basically changing how Congress represents America, where even though half the country is under the age of 38, only about 5% of Congress is. Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like the people who are elected are staying in office longer, maybe because of redistricting, maybe because of money and politics, and that's kind of aging Congress. Yeah. I mean, the incentives to stick around are pretty good. I mean, yeah. particularly if you look in the Senate and on the Democratic side of the House, they reward seniority with power. The campaign finance has had a lot of corrosive effects at times on American politics, the the billion-dollar elections that we're currently in now. And, you know, it hasn't had an impact where if you are an older member, you're able to shore up more capital to kind of fend off primary challengers and hold on to your seats in generals at a rate that's a little bit better than, you know, younger members. The, the other kind of big effect that we've seen is, you know, we just had a redistricting cycle. And oftentimes in redistricting cycles, members are forced into member-on-member primaries. And what we found looking over the past 
past uh, several redistricting cycles is that older members are more likely to survive that. They win about 60% of the time. And so you just kind of have all these structural impacts that have kind of gotten a little bit worse over the past 30 years. The Republican Party tends to be more associated with older supporters, but the Democratic Party actually has a lot of older lawmakers currently in office. Yeah. Why is that? It's a really interesting kind of paradoxical thing that you're highlighting, but it comes down to these structural factors, right? So one thing that's interesting about Republicans versus Democrats in the House of Representatives, for instance, is that Republicans have term limits on committee leaderships and committee chairmanships, whereas Democrats, on the other hand, they value seniority when it comes to giving these positions. And so there's a huge incentive in Democratic Party politics to wait around and stick around. You know, this is for a couple different reasons, one of which is, again, you know, the Democratic Party has it's important to them that they kind of take the minority communities that they represent and give them a chance to attain power. Mm. And, you know, so you'll see some of the folks who have benefited the most from this are folks in places like the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. And that's where some of the strongest support for the seniority based legislation is where in the Republican Party, you know, you get your bite at the apple and then you get to move on. And if you don't want to be a backbencher anymore, then you can move on to other things in public life. Whereas in democratic politics, there's a huge incentive to stay as long in the House of Representatives as you can, because tomorrow you're always going to be more powerful than you were yesterday. For this project, you also did some polling that touched on how Americans feel about the aging of their lawmakers. What did you find? Yes, we worked with Morning Consult and we ran a survey basically just diving into this issue and really getting at it. And what we found is that the American people have really strong opinions about this. Hmm. Um, 41% of respondents said that the political leaders' ages are a problem, a major problem, in fact. And then another 37% said that it was a minor problem. So you're looking at substantial bipartisan majorities of this country who are seeing that the aging of America's government is an issue, right? And and we found that this kind of held across parties, and we found that it actually held across age groups. 75% of respondents were in favor of a maximum age for members of Congress, which is on par with the number of people who want maximum ages for police officers and pilots. Like, this is something that people really care about. That's Walt Hickey. He is a senior data editor at Insider and led the data analysis on a project called Red, White, and Gray. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. When actor Chadwick Boseman, who brought warmth and intelligence to Black Panther, died of cancer two years ago, Marvel Studios faced a decision. The first film had made more than a billion dollars, so there would definitely be another one. But how? Start the story over? Just recast the role and move on? Well, critic Bob Mondello says that unlike other superhero epics, in Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, the death of the film's title character is acknowledged from the very start. The images come fast and painful. Shuri reading the anguish in the Queen Mother's eyes before she can even speak the words, your brother is with the ancestors. A funeral procession, frenetic, mournful, all in blazing white. Even the Marvel logo, usually teeming with superheroes, this time filled exclusively with images of Chadwick Boseman's King T'Challa. The grief is inescapable. Wakanda brought low, but hardly bowed. An attack on an outreach facility. Tactical weapons, no match for Wakanda's tactics. What is your spear? Should he get me this to try? Glowing daggers. You know, I like them better. Our foremothers gave us this spear because it is precise, elegant, and deadly. General Okoye of the Dora Milaje. 
It will not change under my watch. Other things that will not change, at least on writer-director Ryan Coogler's watch, Black Panther's futuristic take on real-world history, in which a proud African nation resists industrial powers that want to strip it of natural resources. This particular attack was an attempt to steal vibranium, the meteor-borne substance that gives Wakanda its power. When the queen addresses the UN, it's to warn the world's colonialists to back off. Further attempts on our resources will be considered an act of aggression and met with a much steeper Response. Kugler amplifies the argument by bringing another long-hidden civilization into the mix this time, an underwater kingdom called Talokan, descended from the ancient Mayans, and led by a ruler who surprises Angela Bassett's grieving queen and Letitia Wright's despondent Shuri by approaching them on a Wakandan riverside. Who are you? And how did you get in here? From the water. This place is amazing. My mother told stories about a place like this. A protected land with people that never have to change who they were. I am not a woman who enjoys repeating herself. Who are you? I have many names. My people call me Ahkukunkan. But my enemies call me Namor. Played by Tenoch Huerta, this guy has wings on his ankles and a chip on his shoulder, one that goes back centuries. He's come because he's looking for partners in a plan the world powers aren't going to like much. I need to know if Wakanda is an ally or an enemy. I'll leave you to find that out. But his presence means that when this film starts globe-hopping James Bond style, it skips the usual world capitals for spots like Haiti and the Yucatan Peninsula. Also that the undersea camera work is stellar, even if the Wakandans are slow to take this new guy seriously. We should find the fishman and kill him. Never mind, with superhuman strength and those wings on his ankles to let him zip around with little regard for physics, he's certainly diverting. As you'll have gathered, Wakanda Forever isn't just an exercise in mourning. In two hours and 40 minutes, it finds plenty of time for whale riding and fierce battles with all manner of spear handling. It is still, in other words, a Marvel movie, though a somber and at times a quite resonant one. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, with programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th-century townhouse in the heart of historic Beacon Hill, now open at 71 Charles Street.